Uh, Alan Leeds is in the house and he has managed uh, everybody from in some form of some form of management capacity. Uh, Prince James Brown, Cameo, D'Angelo, uh, Kiss, uh, which is which is the, the oddball in the bunch. Raphael Sadiq, uh, Maxwell, Barry White. Chris Rock, Harold Melvin in the Blue Notes, Bootsy Collins, uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band. I mean, it's just amazing. So it is an honor for me to be able to bring this gentleman into the stream, Mr. Alan Lee. (laughs) 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 That that applause track that you use, it it sounds like one of those machines that grinds up pavements. Yeah. And they're going to redo the driveway. They have a machine that just goes. That's kind of what it sounds like. He's saying I'll, it's easy I'll, on the ears, Jeff. I'll keep it simple. I just. Oh, <laughs> uh, Andrew, Andrew says he's going to take the old board off my hands. Well, this is perfect. It's just served us well. Yes. Uh, you, you know, I, I had really looked forward to doing the pre-show. Because oh. I understand you get paid double time for that. So I was, you know. Let's not mention well, liquor. I thought my check would be bigger. Don't mention alcohol that, at all. That, that'll make all your other guests happy. So, yeah, we had your brother Eric on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago with St. Paul Peterson. And one of the things he said was, actually, that was in the, the interview we did before uh, when the World Series was happening. Right. And he said, oh, how do I get paid? And we said, what did we say we were going to pay him in Jack yeah, Daniels? Or alcohol or drinks. Yeah, we, 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 I accidentally said it again. And he was, uh, and Facebook wouldn't, uh, for some reason, there was something because of the fact that we mentioned alcohol consumption. It was just like, what? you guys are getting really? way too heavy handed. It's just getting ridiculous. Wow. Then I, I better not tell you what I do. <laughs> yeah. No, it's perfectly fine. We'll just they took off me. alcohol. They'll lock you up for me. <laughs> oh, oh I, I bet you got some stories for sure. Susan, you couldn't have said it better. Welcome, Mr. Leeds. So looking forward to tonight's conversation. Uh, and as I mentioned before, um, you know, I I didn't want this interview to be I listened to about four or five interviews with you that you had oh. done over the, over the past. And in some of these were excessive. Some were like two, three hours. So I was like, you need a life. <laughs> you, you need a life. Oh, oh, I got one. That's no, for sure. Do you go by Christopher or Chris or uh, either one, whatever. And Mr. Christopher is, is the, but you just call me Chris in this, you know, if you're addressing me. Yeah, here, it it just sounds so formal <laughs> and, and, you know, then you have to call Jeff, Mr. Page and call me Mr. Leeds and start thinking I'm working for James Brown again. Cause yeah. Mr. Christopher had a ring to it. So I just got Mr. Christopher. Cool. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, But yeah, you know, I could tell three of the five interviews that you did. uh, I could tell who prepared and who didn't. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's just like okay, what I want things I wanted. What the purpose was, right? Yeah, I I I get that too. But what I wanted to avoid was redundancy. I just wanted to make sure that you know you got some fresh questions tonight that maybe you've never been asked. I uh, kind of wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper because um, I know that every time that somebody interviews you, the, the primary focus is always on James Brown at, or or Prince. Right. And and it's probably not going to be that much different tonight. However, uh, I did want to dig a little bit deeper and kind of um, 
ask some ask some general questions and and just kind of get kind of figure out who you are. So for all of you massive Prince fans that are in here, I know that you guys uh, want to hear all about Prince and that's all fine and dandy, but you're going to have to have patience because we got a legend in the house that has had been involved with so many legendary iconic acts. And we're going to respect that, uh, that career path for sure. So so that means you want to talk about Julio Iglesias. (laughs) <laughs> Did you work with Leo Iglesias? For two days. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a great starting point. That's going to be our longest topic. That's <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, That wasn't even in the list of topics, but you, yeah. Tell us about your experience with Julio Iglesias for two days. It, 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 it doesn't take long to tell it because it didn't last very long. <laughs> it was, he, was, he was managed by the same people that were managing, let's see, who in the hell was I on the road with? It must have been Maxwell. And we had a couple days off, and Julio Iglesias was going to play Atlantic City. We had just finished in Atlantic City, and the manager asked me if I would stay and kind of road manage the shows for Iglesias. I guess he hadn't worked in a while and didn't have an assistant or a road manager. So the manager asked me if I would stay and do a couple of days with the Glacius in Atlantic City. I was already there. So it's like, yeah, what the hell? It's, it's, it's something else. But, right. you know, we shook hands and met. And, um, I escorted a bunch of 85-year-old women to his dressing room after the show. And that was about it. Right. And that, so that's the, that's the extent of it. I that's, mean, that's pretty much the extent of it. If, if he saw me today, he wouldn't know me. I'm not sure I'd know him. But well, because I do have a little bit more deeper questions that I'm going to ask you in, in the scheme of things, because I really want to know. You know, you're you're a tour manager, and um, I'm going to kind of go a little bit out of order, Jeff, because I know we have like a, a list of things. But um, let's actually, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I want to start here yet, but I, I think I'm going to anyways. Um, what exactly, for those who don't know, what exactly are all of the, I guess, the responsibilities of a tour manager? Right. What all are you supposed to, what all are you supposed to handle? I, I've heard you mention, you know, booking the hotel rooms and obviously making sure that people are where they're supposed to be. But there's obviously a lot of other minutia that has to go on and it probably changes from band to band. But what, from a, from a big scope, what exactly does a tour manager do? It um, make sure it, it basically, I, I tell people the tour manager's primary function is to make sure you have a really talented, dependable crew so that all you have to do is sit back and watch it work. <laughs> and, and seriously, that's, that's no. the ideal because you're kind of responsible for any and everything that happens. And yeah, it, it means either you doing it or having a bigger tour. You may have an assistant or a road manager who handles the logistics, booking the limos, booking the hotels, et cetera, et cetera. And in many cases, you do it yourself. But it's so much more than that because you're, when, when you go on tour, and a lot of this you're going to say, well, duh, but when you go on tour, you've got, you're assembling a family. And I say that you know, every tour says, well, it's like family on the road. Most times it's not, but that's the goal because it's functional family. You're really going into an, 
alternative reality. Right. You can throw away your 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 watch. I mean, if anybody still wears a watch, you know, but clocks don't matter because any and everything can happen at any hour. You could be eating meals at four in the morning. You could be waking up at two in the morning, going to bed at six in the morning. I mean, there's there's no there's no regiment because everything depends on on where's the next gig, how long is the bus ride or the flight, et cetera, et cetera. So you're 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 managing not just the band, but the technical crew. Mm-hmm. And of course, primarily the artist and trying to keep everybody happy. And it's pretty much an impossible task. There's always going to be somebody unhappy, but if there's somebody who's not a team player and doesn't really fit or has their own selfish agenda, you want to get that person out real quick because right. it's like poison. It's, it's, it's just like, you know, one, one bad apple spoils the whole thing. So I think a lot of the job is really preparing because if you've properly prepared for a tour and you got the right people with the right attitude, then barring any unforeseen complications, you roll pretty comfortably. You know, you, you develop somewhat of a routine. And if you pick this lifestyle for a career, you already know your your body clock doesn't exist and you just you just roll with shit. But um, I yeah. kind of, I kind of separated myself as much as possible from the busy work, the logistical stuff. I tried to always have somebody do Smart that. Man. Smart and man. Quite honestly, I mean, I, I, I had done that for a few years. For example, the Kiss tour. That's all I did was logistics. That's the gig. But. On a, most of the tours and the artists that I worked with for any length, you know, it's one thing you freelance a tour, you're hired just to do the tour. For example, I did a Barry White tour, did the whole tour, but was hired at the beginning. And at the end, we shook hands and lost each other's number. Tours hmm. over. Right. But the relationships with James Brown first, for a better part of six, seven years, Prince for 10 years. D'Angelo for damn near 20 years. It was really about being very intimate with the artist and catering to the artist's needs and helping him, in in this case, hims, um, feel comfortable and feel safe so that they didn't have to worry about, will the hotel be something that they will like? You've got to get to know these people, know their quirks. And um, just using the hotel as a metaphor, because it has to do with the, the type of bus. I mean, you, you can spend a week just picking a bus for the star of the show because they may be very particular about something or right. finding the right bus, but it's the wrong color. So you got to get the bus painted. You know, it, it's, it's crazy shit like that. But any and everything you can do to make the artist feel comfortable. And the bottom line to everything is that's my wife in the background um, <laughs> on the phone, as usual. Um, she's actually better at this than me. You should have her around. Um, <laughs> Would love to. Sure. <laughs> the biggest thing, I, 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 
tell people is that when shit goes crazy, and it will, it might be a weather complication, or you might have somebody, but I was on a tour where the, the audio, the front of house audio engineer, one of the most important people yep. on, the, on the crew, disappeared. Oh, We played a show in Miami. We had a couple days off. And then we went to the next city. I can't recall where the next city was. And he wasn't there. He wasn't on the crew bus, but people just assumed that meant he would fly. Sometimes people decide they want to stay over in a city rather than ride the bus and they buy a plane ticket and meet you in the next town. The guy right. disappeared. So we got to the show and there's no front of house guy. Now, that's when... Everybody else panics. The band panics. So it's not going to sound right on stage. The artist panics. Everybody panics. Right. You have to be the one who doesn't panic. Inside, your guts might be churning, but you have to show a steady, calm demeanor that you have it under control. The whole point of being a tour manager is making everybody think you have everything under control. And 50% of the time you're bullshit and you don't. But <laughs> right. the point is to keep it rolling and keep everybody happy. That's what you got to do. And, and and I think that's the most difficult thing for a tour manager to learn because shit will go kittywampus. It's bound to. And artists, right. as you all know very well, are temperamental, impulsive, scare easily. They're insecure. Most anyway, most artists. And so the whole point is just keep them happy, keep them secure, make them feel safe, that you got everything under control. And all they have to worry about is their art. Yeah. So, so let me let me follow up with that then, because what you're referring to is really trusting in your people to make sure everything runs smooth as possible. Of course. Uh, so when you end up becoming a tour manager for someone, whether it's a, for a day or two, things like that, oh, well, not the two-day thing, but... How often do you get to actually pick that crew as opposed to coming into an existing crew that's been there? That's a really good question. It, it really depends on the artist. You may come aboard with an artist that already has a lot of people in place that he or she is really happy with. And if that's the case, you don't rock the boat. Right. Right. But if you're coming in from the very beginning, like, for example, when I did with Maxwell, because um, I guess... He had done a few odd dates, but I don't think he had toured before I came aboard. And we really started from scratch. Uh -huh. And we didn't have the budget to attract the kind of uh, professionals that I would have liked to had. So we had to get some less experienced guys and kind of make lemonade. Um, but as Maxwell's career blew up, each tour we had a bigger budget. Each tour, I was able to bring in more people that I knew I could trust, that I also thought their personalities were such that they would bond with Max and really kind of built that from the ground up, which was which was a challenge and a lot of fun. Sim similarly with D'Angelo, because when I came aboard for the Voodoo Tour, he had certainly toured before, but it had been years earlier and none of those people were still around. Well, I think maybe a couple, but... Um, so we were kind of starting from scratch. The key there for me is to have a production manager mm. who's essentially the boss of the crew. Right. Have a guy there that's 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 my guy. We're boys. It's it's got to be somebody that you're close with. 
Okay. Um, I've had situations where I inherited a, a production manager who turned out to be a backstabber. I would tell the artist one thing and he would go tell him something else. Trying to score brownie points. You get those kind of people. Well, that guy had to go. And the artist liked him. So it took a while. I had to just kind of manipulate it so he would hang himself. Um, and eventually, after a couple of weeks, he did. But, you know, that, that that's kind of rare. Usually, um, there's a gentleman by the name of Bill Reeves. And honestly, for behind the scenes, Bill Reeves, you think my resume is crazy, you ought to see his. He's done damn near every artist that I've done, in addition to Luther Vandross and Vogue, R. Kelly, God knows who, Anthony Hamilton. Wow. Um, I mean, Bill Reeves, and he's, he's like an elite level production manager. He and I have worked together for years. We met on a Prince tour, actually... I think he was on the 1999 tour when I came aboard. And he certainly, I think he was stage manager on Purple Rain, which was a huge crew, of course. And then he graduated to becoming a production manager. And we got to the point where whenever one of us had a tour, we'd reach out to see if the other was available because we just worked so well as a team. Mm. Okay. Wow. I mean, you know, whenever I go to a concert, um, I don't know where this came from, but I will always habitually look around and try to assess how much the artist is making on that particular show. I was like, okay, I know how much I paid for my ticket and just try to do numbers in my head. And I, it's like something I'm cursed with. And and I don't, does that ever, do you ever do that? Do you ever go to a concert and just look around and go, oh yeah, he's taking a bath on this show or, <laughs> or just, <laughs> Well, because yeah, if God, if God, God forbid you got empty seats, you know it's not a good sign. Now, <laughs> but, does something have to be so? I mean, I mean, how much does an artist stand to make on like, uh, on like, say, for instance, let's let's just take Purple Rain for instance. Purple Rain was a studio, uh, an arena tour, but about just rough guesstimate about how much do you think the band was clearing in a show for an arena? And I know there's different arena size, but kind, you know. After the lighting yeah, crew is well, paid, after all that stuff is done. With, without giving you real numbers, right? Um, either because I've forgotten or I just don't think it's right. Um, okay. In, in, a, in a case like the Purple Rain Tour, which was, you know, a guaranteed advanced sellout in every town. I mean, it was the hottest ticket. And it was like the Purple Rain, for those of you who aren't old enough to have gone through that phenomenon, um, Amazing. For, for about a year, it was like the Beatles coming to America for the first time. It, it was really insane. Yeah. And I mean, we sold out, I think, seven nights in the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit and yep. sold them all out as quick as they could print the tickets. It, it's like, you know, it was just stupid. In a tour like that, you make an arrangement. And when I say you, it would be his booking agents make an arrangement with a promoter for the whole tour. And there's a, there's a guarantee per night with a percentage over a certain amount. So let's just pick a number out of a hat and say the guarantee is, is a quarter million dollars. It wouldn't have been back then because tickets, tickets were much less cheaper, but it's certainly feasible today. Um, maybe even modest today. But let's just use the number, quarter of a million dollars. And then maybe you get 
of everything over 500,000. In other words, you go to the box office, you count up all the ticket sales, after all the commissions and the ticket fees and all that bullshit, sit there and say, okay, we grossed $600,000 tonight. Well, the artist gets the 250 guarantee plus another 50,000, which is his 50% of the excess over 500,000. Right. Does it make sense? I don't know if I'm yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah, I'm not a math it. teacher. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was always it, trying to yeah. and that's that's usually the case in, in most most arena tours. There's a there's a very hefty guarantee with a percentage if it really just you know blows up through the roof. Mm. And now, obviously, in a case like Maxwell, who was on his first album and his very first tour, um you're just hoping somebody buys some tickets. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know. What do you do when you're in, with your when you're in the face of a guarantee of of somebody you don't even know you don't even know how many people are going to show up? What What do you What do you do as a tour manager? What do you go like? Uh, I don't know. Do you make up a guarantee? Do you kind of like make an assessment in your no, head? Because, because sales? most you mean in advance what to ask for? Right. In exactly. Yeah. Guarantee. Well, you, you have to look at what your costs are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And come up with something realistic so that you're not going to lose money. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a case where it's a new artist working a first album, you're looking at the promotional value as much as anything else. So it's not so much you want to expect to make a ton of money because you're not going to. You're playing clubs or small theaters on a bill with other artists, you know, whatever it takes to get an act established. So you're really just hoping you break even. Mm. And maybe you sit there and say, okay, we need a guarantee based on our on the size of our crew and our travel expenses and blah, 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 boom. You need a guarantee of $25,000 a night just to, again, pick a number out of a hat. Yeah. And you hope that there's enough promoters that are willing to post that to route a tour. Now, most of that responsibility belongs with the booking agent. A tour manager just gets an itinerary after it's all booked, then you say, okay, this is the itinerary. Now I got to make this work. Yeah. In the case of D'Angelo, because I was a personal manager, I was part of putting it together, part of routing the tour, which was something I kind of liked to do because I'd learned how to do it with James Brown because we used to route our own shows. He didn't like working with booking agents or paying 10%. So he actually had us working in house and we would actually rent the arenas make the deals with the arenas and promote the shows ourselves. Now, the, the good news is you sell out, all the money's yours. The bad news is if you don't sell out, you can take a bath because you're the promoter all of a sudden. But very few artists take that role. James Brown was the exception. Yeah, I I, I remember there's a the story that you told about uh, a show that, uh, well, I'll let you tell this story. This is definitely going going off of the off of the line here. But since we're, you kind of mentioned that uh, there was a time when uh, James Brown was sick, <laughs> and you had to make make a decision. You had to bring that. Up. Yeah, there's some there, there's some listeners who probably have not heard that story. I would love for them to be able to hear that story because it's tell it's, Facebook this is not alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Same wink wink. <laughs> it's actually not. It's not. It's not. Either. I told you I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's been a minute. 
<laughs> not why not yet. <laughs> yeah, but share that story about uh, the night that uh, James Brown was sick and you had to make a. Yeah, that, that, that was um, <laughs> pretty crazy. We had a show, I think it was in Providence, Rhode Island. I was home at the time. I lived in Cincinnati where James Brown's offices were. And um, Mr. Brown was sick. He was in New York. He had done a show the night before in New York. He took sick and he was in bed with a fever and, you know, couldn't hold food down. And when he got out of bed, he couldn't walk to the bathroom without stumbling. I mean, he was really, really had a high fever. I guess it was some kind of flu, some bad flu bug. At any rate, um, Bobby Bird, who was his right-hand man offstage as well as on stage, called me and said, hey, the boss is sick. I don't know about this show tonight. This was in the morning. It was a Sunday. And I had planned to just sit home in bed and watch the Cincinnati Bengals game and just just chill out. It was like a Sunday, peaceful Sunday. The show's in Providence. They'll do fine. They'll be back in Cincinnati next week. Meanwhile, I can chill. And I get this call from Bird. So the long and short of it is I start to panic because I'm like, okay, what do I do? The bus had gone ahead. So the band and every and the crew and everybody was at the gig in Providence ready to set up. And I guess they began setting up. And I just knew, like, I better not cancel the show unless Brown tells me. So I wait a couple hours. I called back and I talked to Bird again. And I said, okay, what's up? What's the deal? And he said, man, he ain't going to make it. There's no way he can make it. Dude is like flat on his back. He's delirious. And we called the doctor. The doctor gave him some kind of antibiotics and told him stay in bed for three days. Rest his throat. He can't talk. His throat is all raspy. And he gets dizzy when he gets up. It's like, this guy's really, really sick. And I said, Bird, you serious? You, you sure? <laughs> so I decided I have to cancel the show to cut our losses. Now, why do I want to cut our losses? Because once the venue opens up and people get in there, now all of a sudden we're paying for the security, for the ushers, for the ticket takers. Right. Everybody that's associated with that venue and the production of the show has got to get paid. So if I can cancel it at three o'clock in the afternoon, I can at least save that. Right. Now, it's a Sunday, and this is in 1969 or 70. There's no such thing as a cell phone. Most <laughs> business switchboards are closed on Sundays. So the first challenge was how in the hell do I reach the radio station that is promoting the show and the venue and so on and so on. And thankfully, I had some backup phone numbers and so on. But it was, it's not like you could just pick up the cell phone and say, hey, cancel the show. No, you had to... It, it, it took an hour to reach everybody. Then I had to reach the road manager. He doesn't have a cell phone. So I got to find him and I got to send somebody from the front of the arena all the way to the backstage out to the bus to get the road manager to get on the phone so I can tell him what's up. So th this, is, this is complicated. right? Yeah. So I go through all of that, exhale, put the football game on, go back to my bed and just watching football. Then I said, well, it's about six o'clock now in the evening. And I said, I better check in on the bus because we got other shows later in the week. And 
see what's up. It make sure he's okay. I mean, he loves the guy. I don't, you know, I'm worried about him. Mm-hmm. Well, he had, they had sent for his wife, um, Didi, and she flew up from Augusta, Georgia, to be with him and nurse him and so on because she was worried about him as well. So I called the hotel in New York where he was staying, and Didi answered the phone. And I said, Miss Brown, I'm so glad you're there. I'm really worried about him and so on. How is he doing? She said, how in the hell do I know? He got in his Learjet, went to Providence. Hmm. He was gone before I got here. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay. The Bengals are losing and so am I. <laughs> Dude is flying. He got up out of a sick bed to fly to a show that I've canceled. Oh, no. I just, I mean, I I started thinking about, okay, how long is it going to take before I can pack my shit up and move back to New York and find a new (laughs) job? (laughs) This this is not good. And and you're dealing with, you got to understand, too, you're dealing with a madman. This is not somebody who's reasonable, you know. So you just, I just, I, I told my girlfriend at the time, I said, you know, about, 7.30, this phone is going to ring, and it's going to be the ugliest phone call I've ever had in my life. And it was pretty much so. That's pretty much what happened. He just, he started off, Miss Lees, understand you canceled the show. <laughs> then his voice got a little louder. He said, and I said, well, you know, Mr. Bird, Mr. Bird said you were, you know, so and so and so and so on. He said, is Mr. Bird a doctor? <laughs> if he were sick, would you go to Bobby Bird? <laughs> you know his the title of his record. It says, I need help. That's the name of his song. <laughs> you go call the man who needs help when you're sick. <laughs> and this went on and on. It was a tirade oh, for about God. 10 minutes. Finally, he got it all out and he calmed down and he said, you know, son, I love you for caring about me, but I think you care a little too much. <laughs> Don't you never, mm. never think about canceling or rescheduling one of my shows without hearing it from me first. And of course he was right. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was. Um, so, and you guys probably took a, bath a good day. You took a bath on that one. We t- definitely took a bath on that one. Oh my God! Yeah, because I mean, you're refunding. I mean, sure, you can reschedule, but you know, and I close people's the schedules change, and you know, it's mm-hmm. like no, it's, it's uh, so. We didn't take a bath. We took a deluge. Oh yeah. <laughs> have you, Have you ever had that something similar to that happen while working with other acts like a Prince or any other acts? Something where that came up and you had to make that call. Top of my head, no. Um, well, then there's D'Angelo. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure D'Angelo was full of surprises. Who <laughs> isn't isn't prone to get sick, but he's prone to say he's sick uh. because at least one out of three shows in the afternoon, he'll come knock on your hotel door and say, "Pops," he used to call me "Pops." I said, Pops, I'm not feeling it today. I don't know if I can get it up to do this show. And then uh, you got his name. What does the tour manager do? You sit with the artist for 20 minutes and pump him up 
and convince him that he will be able to survive doing a show tonight. That it won't, you know, put him in a hospital. That somehow he can get on stage and sing the songs he loves to sing with musicians he loves to play with to an audience who adores him, to which he's getting paid. Sounds like an easy night to me. Yeah. Now, you know, he worked, he, he worked hard on stage. Let's let's give props. The Angelo show is no joke. You and I would be very tired doing what he does on stage. But that's what he chose to do. And he could have cared less about what the cost will be. Be like, well, Pops, what would it cost if we reschedule? We got an off day next week. We'll just come back here. And I'm like, dude, do you understand that, that there's costs? There's a lot of costs involved. And then there's the issue of the reliability of your professional reputation. Hmm. which was always a problem because D doesn't come out of the cocoon very often. And when he does, you want to take advantage of it and, and, and prop up that career because he's going to disappear again in another year or two. And I love him to death and I understand the disappearances. I understand that, that, that performing is something that is like a, a, something he has a love hate relationship with. And, um, I get that, but it, it certainly was a challenge because there was never a week went by. And there were cases, there was a case in Europe once where he actually was sitting in his tour bus outside the stage door of the venue and refused to get out of the bus. <sighs> and I spent about an hour in the bus and I tried every psych move I could think of and nothing. Just nothing. I, I even told him, I said, look, go out there, do one song, and then sit down on the side of the stage and tell the audience you're not well and that you're going to do kind of a chill show tonight. And then sit at the keyboard, cut loose, you know, cut out the dancing, just regroup and make it easy on yourself. If you really don't have that urge, just, you know, add lip. No, that. And it was like, no way. That that just was like the stupidest idea he ever heard. So, you know, it, it it's like. Yeah. Yeah. What exactly? Yeah. What are you going to do? And, and meanwhile, yeah. you're probably thinking in the back of your head while you're talking him and doing all this psych work. You're probably talking in the back of your head. You're saying, uh, I wonder what's going on in the house. Is this, you know, how much of the audience is leaving? What's going on during this hour that I'm sitting here trying to get him out? You're like. Freaking well, out. That was the that was the other thing is that at some point when I really realized, I mean, I sent I sent a couple of the band. I think I asked Pino Palladino and and Chris Dave, the drummer on that tour, to go into the bus and talk to him and give him the the musician version. Like, come on, bro, we're a team. Let's we want to do this because the band wants to play. Yeah, um, we tried that. And that didn't work. You know, nothing worked. It was just. And and he was he may not have felt well, but this, this guy wasn't sick. I mean, he was up walking around. He didn't have a fever. He was just just not ready to do a show that night. Yeah. Um, and and it it reached the point where I had to really. And meanwhile, you got to understand: there's a promoter inside. There's the head of the venue inside. They're freaking out. Because if, okay. if you know they're going to lose two, and they're worried about 
crowd reaction? Does the audience get angry and start throwing shit? I mean, you know, shit yeah. can happen. Where, where so, was this at? Where, what city was this? I, I honestly can't remember. It was, I think. Did he eventually come out? It was either in, I think it was somewhere in the Netherlands, somewhere in Holland. Yeah, okay. It's so a small of- town. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't like a major, major market. I no, honestly I, can't remember. Um, but but did he, eventually come out? did he eventually come out? No. Yeah. <laughs> no. He just this. This was most nights. I could when he was in that mood. I could get him out. Oh my gosh, that's a crappy ending to that story. Yeah, yeah. it's a horrible <laughs> ending. But but here again, put your tour manager hat on where you got to, you know, realize your radar screen has to be big. And you sit there and say, okay, at some point we've got to go in and make the promoters really angry and the head of the venue angry because they wanted to get on the bus and talk to him. But I knew that wasn't going to work. He's liable to beat them up i mean you know it's like they weren't getting on the bus but were, you on board, were you on right? board with d'angelo at the essence fest because stacy says i was at the essence fest in new orleans when d'angelo played one song devil's pie for an hour <laughs> yeah I, I remember that but we played about 10 more songs and that might have been an hour each but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway long, long story short the big thing was at some point I had to tell him to take his bus and get out of there because mm. the last thing in the world I wanted to have happen is the audience be told that the show is a, is a, is a, is a rap, nothing's happening. And then the audience who's angry comes out and sees his tour bus. Right. Yeah. So for his sake, it's like, okay, dude, you got to scram. Okay. <laughs> if you, I've tried everything I can. I lost tonight. You won. Now get the hell out of here because otherwise we're going to have a new problem. Um, uh, so that, that's what they did. And I just remembered it was Gottenberg, Sweden. Oh, yep. gosh. You have a fantastic memory. No, I don't. That's why it took so long. Yeah, it, well, like uh, like it, your brother is just ridiculous. He can remember the smallest details of like every oh, single it, show. Sick. Oh, yeah. That's when we played that song for 12 no. and a half minutes. You, you, you have no idea. <laughs> We can be sitting talking about a vacation, and, and I'm not making this up. This this has actually happened. Talking about a family vacation we took when we were kids, when I was about ten years old, and Eric was about five, and he can tell you what we had for dinner at the hotel. Oh Man, seriously, <laughs> and, and I'm like, really. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Those people. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sick. It's, it's, you talk about photographic memory. It's, it's, it's bizarre. And uh, Jeff, you got, you got picture number one. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I, I, Alan, I want you to, to tell me what, uh, uh, I don't think all I'm seeing is we're, yeah. seeing, we're seeing your logo for right now. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a really beautiful logo though. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> let's try that again. <laughs> I actually, you know, I, I can share it if you don't have it right up. I can, I can do it. Let's see if you got this photo. I got it. Here we go. You sure? You positive? Because yep. yep. I, oh, here it is. Okay. I want, and we're going to, we're going to solo this. I, I want to 
Yeah, get a little <laughs> bit of explanation. And I know for all you radio listeners, all you many, many radio listeners all over the world that are listening right now, you can go to facebook.com slash Funkatopia or youtube.com slash Funkatopia and you can kind of watch along. Uh, but right now, this is a little bit of a visual component. But Alan, can you explain this particular uh, photo to us? Exactly what's happening here? What 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 historic thing are we looking at here? Moment. I don't think it's a historic moment. It's a pose picture. It's, it's in <laughs> James James Brown's office in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, the other fellow. His name is Johnny Terry. He's passed away some years ago. Johnny was one of the original. Famous Flames, James Brown's original vocal group that got together in the early 1950s. And he had stopped performing in the 60s, but James hired him on to work in the office as an assistant. So there was a local newspaper in Augusta, Georgia, that was doing a feature on James Brown having moved home and opened up an office in Augusta. They were proud of their, their, their you know, son, the native son. So the, the newspaper came in and took a bunch of pictures in the office, and that was one of them. Wow, this is just uh, <laughs> its just such an iconic picture. Matter of fact, I, uh, I don't know if you have photo two, but I really want to pull up photo two, Jeff, uh, because this photo is um, stunning to me. Uh, this... <laughs> This photo here is uh, stunning to me because obviously it really looks like you were photoshopped into this picture. <laughs> yeah, it is weird. Photoshop wasn't even around. <laughs> but um, you know what? What I find really just interesting. Now, and, and let me let me stop you for a second. Is that because I'm the only white guy? Why are you saying that? No, you're not the only white guy. <laughs> but it's like the positioning. It's like you knew where the camera was. It was like it was like a posed picture that looks like it was cut out and then placed. <laughs> on there no it's it, yeah you're right it is kind of strange but yeah, no and it this a couple this of gentlemen was, behind you the couple of gentlemen behind you were probably like oh i can get my picture taken with james and your hair obviously nobody knew there was a camera <laughs> nobody knew there was a camera there if, if so, you can tell no nobody's really looking in the direction of the camera i'm not either uh, yeah. um, so this uh my eyes are focused yeah, so is this backstage? What's what's happening it's, here in this picture photo? It's backstage at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh. And um, it was after the show and we were leaving. The Fellas with the Berets was a kind of Black Panther wannabe group in Pittsburgh that was called the Black Gorillas, G-U, Gorillas, G-U-E. Um, and um, we had hired them to do security at the show. Because hmm. the Pittsburgh cops were kind of like not black audience friendly. So we decided that um, when we came back to Pittsburgh, we would use these guys as security. And they did a great job. And they're backstage. They had been talking with Brown. And Brown's on his way out to his car to leave the venue. And we're all just walking him out of the dressing room. Behind me, you can just barely see one of her eyes on the far left as you're facing the picture is Gertrude Sanders, who was Brown's longtime wardrobe mistress. She'd been with James since the early 60s, and everybody who knew Brown knew Gertrude. And behind me is then Charles Bobbitt, who was Brown's personal manager for many years wow. and later went on the road with Michael Jackson and so on. He's kind of a under the radar screen legendary figure. 
And the guy on the right with, with the T-shirt with the low collar is um, a Pittsburgh area disc jockey named Brother Matt, Matt Ledbetter, who was a very, very popular disc jockey, radio personality, and he would MC shows. And he was also a personal friend of mine. I lived in Pittsburgh for several years, and Matt and I used to hang out together all the time. He's probably my best friend in Pittsburgh and just happened to also be in this position in the business. So that's, wow. that's the picture. But Such I don't think I don't think any of us knew that picture was being taken. Um, I got the picture from Matt, actually, um, who said a friend of his had given him a bunch of pictures that had been taken at the James Brown show. Do you want to see him? And I said, yeah, oh, you got to give me that one. You know? so, oh, yeah. It's just, there it is. So, so there's there's some amateur photographer in Pittsburgh in 1970 took that shot. It's just, it's so, so iconic. I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. Yeah. You can come back Jeff. Cause um, one of the things I, I did, I did want to uh, also share. Um, and by the way, the Afro was real. I mean, now we call it a Jew. How long is that? I would have said that then, but it, <laughs> believe it or not, it's, it, it was real. Much, how long much did that to my parents chagrin. It was like. How long did that take you to, to, quaff in the morning or did you just kind of just pick it out and just go it, with it no you, you had to carry a pick are you kidding oh yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah but it was so perfect i mean you was you see how perfectly rounded that afro was i mean it was well in like, that picture in the office yeah because we knew the photographer was coming so you had to pick it out and but it wasn't very practical and the worst was when you would fly and you know have a flight because as, as you know, air, airplane seats are very high. Right. Yeah. So I had to fly like this, bent over. Because if I sat back in the plane to be comfortable, the fro would totally flatten in the back. <laughs> and it wasn't a good look. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not how you want to get off the plane. So, so my neck would always hurt. I used to hate flying because it was like, oh shit! Now my neck's gonna hurt because I gotta, I gotta bend over the whole damn flight because oh of this God. stupid fro. <laughs> we got a little shout out for uh, your wife from a uh, friend. Rodney says the Under the Cherry Moon film crew jacket I own was acquired originally from the amazing Miss Gwen Leeds. Ah. You tell her thank you so much. Okay, I will. <laughs> And Stacy said, uh, "Your Afro gets much respect." Well, thank you, thank you very much. Much. It's it's um, it's, it's actually my hair was obviously a lot different than it is now, and this is not what we really want to talk about is hair, but um, no, it's great. Um, having gone through, I had to go through chemotherapy on a couple of occasions, and as you know, chemo your hair falls out, which mm -hmm. it did. And it grew back much straighter than it used to be. I mean, it used to be very wavy and thick. And it's like post-chemo was like, okay, forget about it. <laughs> Your Jew Pro days are over. Oh, my gosh. If you still had an Afro right now, I think it's, it would just be amazing. Jew Pro. Yeah, it I, would, would, I would have to be like an ongoing friend. I mean, I would have to hang out with you like all the at time. At my age, it would be a little <laughs> questionable, I think. It's, it's just, you know, <laughs> that yeah. makes it so interesting. All right. So I want to talk about how you got involved with, um, with James Brown and all you Prince fans come down. We're going to get, we're, we're going to do Prince questions. Just, just hold on a second. But have you seen the movie? Um, I'm sure you have, you saw the movie get on up. Yeah. 
Yeah, of course. Of course. So, um, one of the things that's in there, you know, surprisingly enough, you know, you weren't you weren't in the movie. However, uh, there is a section of the movie where James is talking about how exactly the DJs and stuff get get paid and 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 stuff as far as you utilizing them to promote shows. Here's a little clip uh, for those who may not be familiar with what I'm I'm talking about. Wake up to the young kids, the hungry kids, the late night kids. The 20-year-old white DJ from Richmond, Virginia, who ain't getting paid, nothing, they only doing it because they love the music. We go to him and we ask him if he want to be the sole James Brown promoter for the Richmond show for a percentage. He gonna say, are you kidding me? Do you know how much they pay me? Uh-huh. I took nothing to $50 a week, but he loved my music. Oh, he dig himself some James Brown. And he got a microphone and a turntable and four hours of airtime time to kid. See? This is Alan Leeds coming back at you. Now with his new hit, Papa's got a brand new bag. It's James Brown. And at the end, he gonna say, and make sure you catch James Brown at the arena in Richmond this Tuesday. I see, because he's young, he's 20, and he got strong legs, and he know everybody. He know the cat at the pool hall. He know the cat at the barber shop. So, so exactly, you know, and I just wanted to play that clip. I don't know if you you, you probably saw that clip or not, but uh, or oh, remember yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I saw the clip. And I, I didn't realize. Where did they get that guy? Why, why couldn't I be at casting? Why did they get that guy? Yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, that, that that was that was that was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, but obviously they utilized you during your DJ portion of this, and um, you know that. That was kind of a little bit unusual because I think I've heard you tell the story before that, you know, you had had an opportunity to kind of promote an event for James and you did such an amazing deal that he brought you on. So I, I don't how they utilized you in that, I guess, is not really accurate. But is that really how it, it worked out back in those days as far as was James one of the first people to actually do that, that that plan as yeah far as- i think i think so and and quite honestly it, it it pretty much is accurate um because in my radio days we did myself and another couple of young disc jockeys um did actually promote some club shows with with um, you know otis redding or the drifters the curtis mayfield the impressions We'd bring them to town and put them in a couple of clubs, one club on Friday and one on Saturday, and and make a little money. Um, with James, I didn't promote one of his shows until 1969, and from that, that was an arena show in Pittsburgh, and it came close to selling out, and he was impressed, and um, that's what led to going to work for him. So, I mean, you know, the, the film stops there. It doesn't explain that it led from disc jockey to promoter to an employee of the artist. But that wasn't necessary for the film. It made a point. And, and yeah, it was true. James used disc jockeys in most major cities as front men for his concerts. Mm-hmm. And it made a lot of sense because if you got the disc jockey in your pocket, then he's going to play your records and he's right. going to play Bobby Bird's records and he's going to play the JB's and Martha Whitney and Vicki Anderson. He's going to play every damn record you send him because he's getting paid at the gig. Now, you know, it's, is it payola? Yeah, it, it is. And it isn't. If, if, if the advertisements on the radio are paid for, 
then it's not payola. But right, if yeah, the guy yeah. is just rambling on constantly about the show and it's not a paid advertisement and he's just riffing, well, then he could get in trouble. But, you know, nobody was clocking that shit back then. Nobody. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and nope. the, disc, the disc jockeys, um, particularly at urban radio stations at that particular time, were woefully underpaid. And the station owners knew that they were going to use that voice, that presence in the community for other hustles. And those hustles, yeah. the easiest hustle was to front shows. So, yeah. Well, and I got to tell you, I mean, there's there's like, you know, I'm going to ask you a few more questions about James, but then we'll move on to, you know, some of the Prince questions as well. But while while I am, I'm going to take the big screen here because I did uh, actually go ahead as part of the research here. I did purchase this amazing book. There was a time James Brown, the Chitlin Circuit and me that is out right now on Amazon. I just I will actually put up the Amazon link for you guys to actually purchase it. Uh, show your respect to this amazing uh, man right here and this book. And um, I, I can only imagine, um, unfortunately, it just came to me a, a couple of days ago. So I was busy listening to interviews. <laughs> I got a chance to read this amazing book. But well, and that's the same shit that's in the book. I only got so much to say. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's just, um, it, it's, it's really cool because you also worked uh, with, uh, Questlove on the, you know he did the forward on this and man I definitely if you guys want to hear some more great stories about James Brown this book is available right now on Amazon I just put the link up there for you so you guys can pick it up well, it, 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 at the risk of uh, trying to sound like a, a commercial for the book yes it's about James Brown but the, the real thing that that inspired me to do the book was I wanted to capture the flavor of what the business was like back in the 60s and early 70s before the touring business became corporatized. When yeah. it really was a hustle. The money wasn't huge. And I mean, James did better than most, obviously. He wasn't a poor man. He did quite well. But I mean, it wasn't like today where you're, you're grossing millions of dollars every week. Um, if we had a night where the gross was $75,000, we were ecstatic. And maybe we would we'd walk with half of that. Um, and it was a mom and pop business. And so I, I wanted a book that, that could kind of capture the flavor of what that whole existence was like on the road back then. Um, the immediate post-civil rights era where mm. legally integration was in and supposedly hotels and and uh, public facilities were now totally integrated by law, but there were still cities, particularly down south, where they didn't practice it and resisted it. And, you know, just just really paint a picture of that whole genre. And so, so James Brown and my experience are just kind of like, there have been other books that have talked about the Chitlin circuit in those days, but they're very seldom written by somebody who was there. And since mm. most everybody who was there with me are either dead or senile, I figured before I'm one or the other, I better write this shit. I, I just want kids to be able to go to the library 20 years from now and get a sense of what it was like, because it was so radically different than what the business is today. Uh, I mean, you know, and you always talked about, I mean, just talking about how different the business is. And when you first came in, you, you 
admittedly didn't know a whole bunch. I mean, you, you, you even mentioned you were always learning on the fly right. and, and that you, and that happened when you started working with James and you, what was probably, you know, you're kind of getting advice on the go and, and probably a lot directly from him. What is the best piece of advice that you ever received? Not necessarily from him, but maybe from anyone that you've worked with that proved to be invaluable information that undoubtedly helped you do your job better across the board. That's a great question. I wish I had a good answer. (laughs) Um, You know, there's always like something that somebody says, it's just like, um, you know, this, this is a a weird example, but like, um, I I shouldn't be the the focal point of this. Uh, One time I went to go hear Zig Ziglar and he was talking during the sales event. And he said, you ever go on vacation and write it when you're about to go on vacation that day that is the last day in the office before your vacation, the amount of work that you get done in that day is just <laughs> unreal because you're, you're, you're up against the clock. He said, if you apply that same energy, that same volume of effort into every single day, he said, you'd you would dead. be an expert. You would be, you'd be dead. You'd be dead. You would be an expert in, and you'd be like one of the top professionals in whatever industry it is. No, that, 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 that's a good point. I, I think of it, to, to me, you just described Fridays. That was, that was my thing. In, right. in, in any office I worked in, whether it was Paisley Park or James Brown Productions or any other jobs I had, it was always Fridays was the panic. Okay, got to get this done, got to get this done, got to get this done. So that, that's, 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 that's very true. Um, yeah. I'm really hard pressed to think of a specific answer to your question. It's a damn good question. I'm not sure anybody's ever asked me that. And I feel guilty for not having an answer because there were certainly so many people who taught me things and, and you know, showed me the ropes. Um, people well, I, that I have gratitude for. And I can sit here and name them, but I can't, can't remember the specific, you know, specific thing. Well, and I, one of the other things that I heard, because we'll want another question, because I'll let you kind of, it's probably going to be stirring in the back of your yeah, mind. I mean, I'll think of up. it tonight. You know, <laughs> I'm sure. You wake up in bed, I'll wake up at two in the morning. Aha. Right. <laughs> now, um, you had mentioned, you know, some of the, the, a lot of the bands that are, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, and, and even in some cases, the 70s, especially a lot of the R&B acts, uh, one of the things I learned listening to some of the, the past talks that you've done was that a lot of these big bands did not have bands like, you know, say like a little Richard would not have his own band. He, it would be little Richard. And then you would work with whatever band it was. That you went in to that town mm-hmm. and you had mentioned that, you know, I mean, a lot of them uh, and there were yep. many, many of them were like that. You would go into a town and then whatever the house band was for whatever that venue was, yep. that's who, that's who you worked with. Um, and I, I was not aware of that. I always thought that these big name bands always had their own, their own thing. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and that experience of, you know, uh, because the second part to this question is, is that you, you mentioned that, you know, some of the bands in the venues down South, most of them didn't read music. They just kind of played by ear. They kind of did their own things. But a lot of the bands that were up north, they required you to bring sheet music. And if you didn't have them, you said you got your feelings hurt. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of speak to that whole process a little bit? And also, was there a time where you guys went into a town, say with James or Prince or anybody, and and did get your feelings hurt? 
Not, not really. Um, of course, James and Prince were always had their own bands. They had their own bands, right? Always, they were always self-contained. But, but you're right. If 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 you indulge me to go back to the '60s, and I'll talk about some artists yeah. that that a lot of your viewers may or may not be familiar with. But the the, the goal in the soul music era for an artist was first get a hit record in order to get on the road, to get booked. And you'd probably be an opening act on a tour with a major artist. Like you might be, like maybe James Brown would hire you for a month as an opening act to travel on his show. Then you'd hope to get a couple of more hit records to the point where promoters and club owners were anxious to book you. Then at that point, maybe you could afford to hire a guitar player. That was usually what came first, was a guitar player who was be the, would be the music director. And you would get to a town. The guitar player would meet with the, whatever band the promoter had provided to back you up that night. Now, mind you, the, if, if, if you got a local band and you know you're going to back up Wilson Pickett on Saturday night, you spend the week rehearsing his songs. You go out and get his records, and you learn his songs. Um, once you had a guitar player, then at least you had somebody who was musically capable of leading this band and hopefully salvaging something out of it, because sometimes these bands were really good, and sometimes they were not so good. Sometimes they didn't care enough to really learn the songs. And they did a half-assed job of learning the songs. Um, then, if you were successful enough, let me let me let me illustrate it a better way, so it doesn't I don't just ramble on. No, that's Kurt, right. Kurt, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions started out <laughs> as a five-member vocal group. Yes. Then it became a three-member vocal group. It was Curtis who sang lead and played guitar, mm -hmm. and two other singers, Sam Gooden and Fred Cash. Those were the impressions when they made their biggest hit records. People Get Ready, um, Keep On Pushing, It's All Right, all those big records they had in the 60s that probably none of the viewers tonight have ever heard of. But at any rate, they were huge like sing, We can sing some some bars for it. There for you go. And I know you guys would know. <laughs> go ahead. That's good. I'll stop. Go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> Can you do Wilson Pickett? Because I'm going to talk about him. Too. <laughs> um, the first time I saw the impressions, it was just them and Curtis. And there was a house band that backed them, did a fairly decent job. And, you know, it was like, okay, cool. The next time I saw them, they had a bass player and a drummer. So now you mean with their own musicians, now they can start to play around with um, what we used to call taking the songs and making a show of it. You can start rearranging some of the songs, extending them so that they're sing-alongs with the audience, you know, different, different gimmicks right. to make the songs come alive so they're more than just that three-minute 45 mm. yeah. that people were buying. And then the goal would be is, is hopefully to become successful enough that you could afford to have a full band. And eventually the impressions did. So that was kind of like how it, the stepping stones. And it would, you know, to, and mind you, this is the age where it's all about singles. It's not about albums. 
It's all about singles. People didn't buy albums hardly. And if they did, the albums were just a collection of the group's old singles. So it's every your, your whole career depended on your latest single. And if you're a major artist in the soul era, Solomon Burke, Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, et cetera, et cetera, you released a new 45 every, basically every three months. The only one who did it more often was James Brown because he just threw records out constantly. But the whole idea was to become successful enough to afford a man. But the point being is that the economy of the soul music circuit was that it took more than one or two hits to reach the point where you could earn enough money to support bringing a band on the road. So until you reach that point, assuming you did reach that point, you were stuck with doing these gigs where the artists would come in town and have no idea who's going to back them up and go to a rehearsal the day of the show and just hope for the best. And, you know, I saw some shows that were disasters because <laughs> the artists got in late, the flight was delayed, they didn't have a rehearsal. Yeah. And, you know, I remember a show I was emceeing at a club in Richmond in the 60s, and it was the Drifters who had a, a string of huge hits under the boardwalk on Broadway, up on the roof. These were huge hit songs. And this was a group of four singers with a guitar player. And we had a local band to back them up that had pretty much learned their songs, but not really. And uh, Abdul Samad, who was their guitar player, was a friend of mine, I remember standing on the side of the stage and he was literally calling out chord changes to the band as the show went on. The group's up front singing their hearts out and he's in the back hollering out chord changes just so the band could at least try to keep up. And, you know, it it it, it was a mom and pop business. Yeah. Now, you say, well, how in the world did you get away with that? Well, understand too that back in those days, the PA systems weren't what they are today. They didn't put microphones on the drums. You know, it, it was it was all acoustic. I mean, there was there were mics for the for the singers, obviously. And mm-hmm. there might be a mic or two for the horns if if there's horn players in the band. But the guitar player and the bass player cranked their amps up to 10. And I'm talking about James Brown in an arena. The guitar players and the bass players crank their amps. The drummers are playing as hard as they can, like they're trying to kill somebody. And you sometimes can hear the horns, even though they're mic'd, it might be low in the mix. So it's it's not like the audiences were accustomed to hearing really good audio at venues. It, it nobody had ever heard a show sound like they sound today. Right. Yeah. And and soul music was a singer's art. It was all about the singer, right. just by definition. That, that's what that that genre was about. So if the singer sounded good, if you could hear the singers and they sounded good, like sounded like the record, you know, then they'd get over it. They, 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 they'd win. Yeah. And the band might sound like shit, but the audience would kind of play past that as long as the singers killed. Okay. I, I like that you're bringing up that uh, that genre, that era, should I say, because a couple of weeks ago, we had the Soul Sisters, the original Piperettes. We had Brenda Lee Eager and Patty Henley. Wow. And uh, they both performed, they performed in New York and they were called 
last minute to come play with James. So of course they're all excited. And then they came to the realization they didn't know James's music as far as the background vocals had gone. They said so they were shopping. They said we were out shopping and somebody called and said, uh, can you come sing for James? And they were like, oh, we're excited. And they excited. <laughs> in the cab driving to the show at, I guess yeah. the Bible was at the Apollo. Uh -huh. And they were just like, well, we don't know any James songs. Or we don't know right. the, the vocal parts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> How does that responsibility fall? Does that is that something when you're looking for you know finding those last minute people, is that something that, that you? That's, have to that's, make sure? that's a good question, but quite honestly, that's a kind of a weird story for me because he always carried singers and musicians. I mean, he was fully contained. He had he had a lot of people on the road. I mean, he'd have a fifteen piece band and three background singers and opening acts that were on salary in house. You know. Yeah. Um, a comedian, you know. Um, yeah, I can't. So for, I don't remember the time for him I... to reach out like that is is kind of un, unusual. And I wonder what era that was when that actually happened. They were. It was in sixty. Yeah. It was like sixty. They were working with uh, uh, Reverend Jesse Jackson. Jackson. Operation uh, Breadbasket and for the Operation Breadbasket. Uh, okay, so that that would have been later. That would have been early seventies. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that was around the period of time that, that they were. And I, I don't know what the scenario was, whether or not they were short a couple of singers, but it was, it was just a funny story. Cause well, I, I, I could imagine excitement. And then that was no, that, 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 that's possible because James was, was impulsive and he might be like opening at the Apollo and thinking to himself, like, okay, I played here last year. What am I going to do? That's different. And you know what? It would be, you know, at the last minute, decided it would really be cool to have some female backup singers. And, you know, whoever was his road manager at the time probably had to make a call and figure out who to call. And, you know, so that that's that's feasible. Yeah, yeah let me uh, I'm going to kind of bounce around a little bit here, Jeff, because, you know, we, we saw, you know, obviously in a lot of the stories that we hear told about James Brown and and. And obviously the way the movies portray him, there's, you know, there's the truth is somewhere in the middle. Uh, but we saw like a lot of different things, like whenever he would dock the band for missing a note, he had those hand signals that he would do sure. um, that would do duck show or whatever. And I can only imagine that a lot of that stuff kind of got created a lot of heated moments and maybe some onstage frustrations that maybe kind of spilled over after the show. Were there ever any altercations or really heated moments that stand out in your memory that that happened in the middle of a show where you're like, Oh, as a tour manager, like, uh, I gotta get, I gotta get this together. I gotta control this situation before it gets out of hand. I can't think of anything that got out of hand, but there was always drama because he quite honestly, he likes stirring up drama. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm not a shrink, so I won't sit here and try to analyze why. But, but he did. He liked playing people against each other. And maybe it was like that's how he thought he would retain loyalty. Because you got to understand, James Brown was a very complicated man. He did not believe in trusting people. He couldn't. And I suppose that comes here again. I'll be an amateur shrink. You know, you're born in the Jim Crow South in the 19, what was he born in, 30, in the 30s? And yeah. you're, you're, you're a kid in the 1940s in Georgia of all places, one of the worst of the states when it came to race relations and 
let's put it more bluntly, when it came to being safe as a young black man in the streets of Augusta, Georgia. Um, and he came up without any real parental supervision. His mother left when he was six. His father was in and out of his life. And, um, you know, you could almost say he was orphaned. And he drops out of school in the sixth grade to, sh to run a shoeshine stand and hustle and whatever he could do. Ends up going to reform school. I mean, and he's sitting there in this era, and this is before the Civil Rights Bill, and he's sitting there saying, how in the world am I going to get out of Jim Crow, Georgia? And make something of myself. And, yeah. you know, when you come from that kind of background where you can't trust your own parents, it kind of teaches you at a very early age not to trust human beings. And I don't think he ever did trust anybody. Now, he would trust you for a minute and you'd be in his good graces. But then he would sit there and think about, oh, I'm showing him too much trust. He's going to take advantage. He's going to rip me off. Mm. And he was always worried that any of us who had access to the box office at the venues, he was always worried about whether or not any of us would be dipping our fingers in the till. And as a result, he would accuse you of it, even if you didn't do it, just to keep you on your toes. In other words, like, you better not steal from me because I'm going to catch you. You know, it's that kind of thing. Just And that's the kind of paranoia that, that comes from a background where you literally couldn't trust anybody. Um, strangely enough, Prince was very much like that, but that's a whole other story. Um, he, too, had trust yeah. issues. Yeah, he was very so, protective over not just not just the money part of it, but also for, you know, just protecting his... Yeah, his yeah well, no, it, and, and even with James, it wasn't just the money. It was like you didn't dare look at his girlfriends too closely. <laughs> you know, because if you're misleads, you got your eyes on her. Yes. You better not do that. Don't make a fool of yourself, Miss Leeds. Don't be yeah, to talk to her up. Man, you ain't ready for her. You ain't ready for the likes of her. <laughs> Only I can handle her, you know. <laughs> like, no. and, and, and and you know, so, so so with a person like that, there was bound to be drama. Yeah. And and then you got, you know, we had we had dancing girls. We had a troop of five. Well, this was before I worked for him, but I knew them then. He had five dancing girls called the Twisting Parkettes who were on stage, you know, shaking their booties and doing whatever you did back in the 60s. It was pretty tame compared to today. <laughs> but, I mean, there was no Nicki Minaj, but it was, you know, it was some sexy stuff. And right. his idea was, let's have something for everybody. So we'll have some girls for the guys to look at. And, you know, now, mind you, all these people are on a bus together after the show, going to the next town. So you got five girls, you got backup singers, male and female. You got all these young guys in the band whose wives and girlfriends are at home and they're getting frustrated, <laughs> to use the word lightly. So shit was bound to happen. And I mean, I, I was actually talking to somebody just very recently about Maceo Parker, who ended up marrying one of those dancers. She sadly passed away not too long ago, Bunny. But... Um, uh, Bernard Odom, the bass player, married one of the dancers. Nat Kendrick, who was one of his early drummers, married one of the dancers. So, you know, you had all of this going on. And naturally, if you got a band of, of 10, 12, 15 musicians and you only got five dancers, then 
you know, only five guys are going to be happy at best. So there's drama. There's always drama. And then you had the fact that James always had his eyes on all the girls that worked on the show. And I always think of this, and, and I don't know who to attribute this quote to. It's it's a quote that's that's been passed on through books and interviews and so on. So I, 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 I don't know whose quote it was. But it's the old adage with Ray Charles and his Ray Letts. His Ray Letts were his backup singers, female backup singers. And the joke was, if you want to be a Ray Lett, first you got to let Ray. <laughs> well, and wow. it, it wasn't too much different with the James Brown show. I'm not saying every woman on the road with James Brown slept with him because everyone didn't. But a remarkable, a remarkable percentage of them did at some point. And they usually knew each other had slept with him. So now you got these girls on the bus looking at each other with darts in their eyes, you know, or competing to see who's going to stay with him tomorrow night. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it's like show business is fantastic. A lot of it changes, but some of it never does. I end up on the Purple Rain tour, and who's on the bus with Prince? Vanity, Jill Jones, Susan Moonsey. <laughs> you know, it's like Ugh, lots then, of drama. Then there. Sheila E shows up, and I'm like, mm. Jesus Christ, the harem grows. And, <laughs> and it, it, it was, you know, drama. <laughs> For those of you just joining us, we are joined by the amazing Alan Leeds, who has served in some management capacity with a wide variety of artists. James Brown, Prince, uh, we're talking about James Brown right now, Prince, Cameo, D'Angelo, Raphael Sadiq, Maxwell, uh, the list just goes on and on and on. And Jeff, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted. You were about to ask a question. Sorry. No, I, I think I was. <laughs> it was probably, probably interrupted. That's, that's all good. Yeah, that's all good. Um, don't, don't forget there was a band in Pittsburgh called Taken Names that my brother ran. That's right. And I managed them too. So put put them on the list. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you take speaking a name speaking of which, there's no better time. <laughs> yes. Say yes. That this CD by Eric and Paul Peterson with guest appearances by Brian Lynch, a remarkable trumpet player, Mike Stern, who played guitar with Miles Davis. Questlove. And the ubiquitous Questlove. Um, yep. This CD is now officially released. And, and if you go on Eric's Facebook page, or I think there's a Facebook page for the CD. I don't know how the hell they sell CDs in this day and age. I used to go to record stores. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how this works. But, but somehow it, it, it's officially released. And it, it really, even if my brother wasn't on it, I would like it. it it's, it's a yeah, terrific, it's really terrific CD of of some remarkable jazz. Some of it's kind of fusion-y, some of it's, you know, very contemporary. But this is a band, um, they call it LP, Leeds Peterson. And they actually opened for D'Angelo at First Avenue several years ago. I did not know that. D'Angelo was late and the crowd was getting restless. Place was maxed out. I mean, there were people on top of people. Mm. And... D'Angelo had had a problem with weather coming out of Chicago on his flight. And we had to ask Eric and Paul to extend their set. And Questlove sat in with them that night. He happened to be in town. He was going to DJ. So that was the show. It was LP Music opening up D'Angelo 
and then Questlove would DJ. And um, anyway, we had to ask Paul and Eric to just ad lib and kill some time until D got there. And they killed. I mean, this is a D'Angelo audience. They didn't pay to see LP music. It's a D'Angelo audience. And this band absolutely tore the club up. So yeah. it, it frustrates me to no end how difficult it is for them to find an audience in this modern music business where jazz is kind of cast aside to jazz clubs where old people go. And, you know, you have the exceptions, of course, are Kamasi Washington, who's had remarkable success, deservedly so, and a handful of others. But it's like if you can yeah. kill a D'Angelo crowd that's restless waiting for D'Angelo, and absolutely tear the place up, then you must be onto something. Anyway, that's the music on this record. So yeah. go get yeah. it. And it's it is fantastic. And and you're right. You 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 did bring up uh, uh you know there's so many struggling artists that kind of fall in that in that scope. Esperanza Spalding. You mentioned Kamasi, Robert Glasper. Yeah. Yeah. All these all these guys that you know are just phenomenal artists that. And I think the problem is, and we have this, I had this way in like the, the, the basic section. Um, yes. We're going to talk about print stuff. Calm down. Uh, <laughs> uh, in, in the basic section, I, I'd mentioned that radio has just became become very, very disposable. It's like the songs that you hear on the radio now, next year, you're not going to hear them at all. It's very, very few, few and far between. It's like, it's it's this generational thing where people are taking in music and then they're just disposing of it. It's like listening mm -hmm. to it, okay, and next, and okay. And I don't know if that was really kind of something that's happened with Spotify, it's happened with Pandora, or the way that they kind of just churn out music. Like literally every single day, there are at least a few dozen brand new albums or new releases that happen to the point where Spotify actually has a thing where if you're a Spotify member, they have, they curate a mm -hmm. brand new list of like tons of music that you probably would like that is right. catered to what you listen to every single week. Yeah. And it, it's how, how you would get found as an artist nowadays is just, on you have to be doing something just insane yeah um, it, it's it, to stand out I'm sorry. no it, go ahead it, it it is very challenging and frustrating because jeff will tell you <laughs> <laughs> he's a struggling I, I, artist i mean he's really good and it's just like no I, I i think there's probably more good music out there today than there's ever been and the technology is a blessing and a curse because the technology has allowed a situation where, number one, you don't need to buy thousands of dollars worth of equipment. You just need a computer. Um, and I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but nonetheless, how many records are made that way? And right. if you got Pro Tools, which is expensive, but if you got that, you can make the record in your bedroom. You know, you don't even have to get out of bed. Yeah. And, um, and, Thanks to not just Spotify, but just just social media in general, um, you no longer have to get. I mean, in the old days, if you're going to make a record, nobody even knew how to do it unless you were signed to a label who could afford to hire a studio and put you in there with some musicians and make some music. Right. Um, you don't have to go through that anymore. Right. You can just make it and put it out there. 
Problem is, now it's out there. But what's there? What is there? Right. Lots what is the definition of out there? Is, is it just in <laughs> exactly. infinity somewhere? You know, and, and how are people going to find it? And I think we're still too much. I mean, there are exceptions. I get that. But, but we're too much stuck with categories. The thing <laughs> about Spotify and all of them curating playlists is they're telling you what you're going to like. Right. They don't know what I'm going to like. Exactly. I didn't like reggae until about 15 years ago. I went through my whole life ignoring reggae. Yeah. And then one day I was sitting with somebody who happened to be playing a Bob Marley record. And I just sat there and it was an aha moment. I'm like, holy shit, how did I miss this? Right. And I went, I bought every Bob Marley record in the world and, you know, <laughs> the, the dub versions and what, whatever else. And, and, you know, Spotify would have never put Bob Marley on my list. So, and, and particularly when it comes to jazz, because that's become such a scary word to young people, because it just suddenly, it, it, it means jazz clubs where old people go. And they might be young musicians, but they're playing old people's music for old audiences. And it's bullshit. It's totally bullshit. It's entirely. There, yeah. there are people... And, and yes, there have been exceptions. I mean, there are jazz. When you hear D'Angelo live, it's damn near like there's a very jazz mentality in the band. Right. Um, listening to Pino and Chris Dave just as a bass player drummer combination. Um, I used to love those tours because I would just sit there and listen to them every night because they did shit different. Mm -hmm. They were constantly challenging each other. That's what jazz is. And, and, Many of the audience weren't paying close attention to that. They're, 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 they're to see and hear D'Angelo. I get that. But it was an additional element to the music that maybe you'd hear that and maybe that would inspire you to go out and check out some jazz. Maybe that would inspire you to get a Kamasi Washington CD or go to one of his gigs and hear something that you never dreamt before. But how many more Kamasi Washingtons are there? You know, Chris Dave, the drummer, has drum heads. Very innovative. He's got several albums up on, on Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, he did one for Blue Note Records. I think he got dropped. I'm not sure. Because all of a sudden, there's these other records on Bandcamp. They're, they're tremendous. And they're in the same vogue as some of the Robert Glasper stuff. Yeah, Jeff and I have seen plenty of artists that, that, have, that have struggled and came up out of Atlanta. Van Hunt. Um, is a good right. friend of perfect. mine. Yeah, perfect uh, example. Perfect Van Hunt example. is like was like, and when he was picked up by Blue Note, um, he had an amazing album that they shelved, which mm. really screwed up his whole creative yeah. process. It was kind of like having your Sign of the Times album right. shelved, right? Because he had an album called The Popular Machine that just like they sat on they sat on it forever mm -hmm. it finally got released i guess uh, years ago but it was like it was just it was too late <clears throat> already done it's damn right missed its right. moment right it missed its you moment you know these artists that are, are like are just such phenomenal artists and they're just well it's, it's a, shame. a lot of the difficulty is because just like you said spotify is giving you your playlist where they're trying to tell us so what we've lost is people people influencing people people right. showing people what music is good instead we're we're se separating everyone and you're becoming so individual you think you're becoming an individualist but what you're doing is you're missing out because right. you don't have anyone to help point and steer you like um when eric was 
on the show, he was talking about his music and, and the things he does and you, you know, his records out. Both of you have very different musical tastes. Both of you love jazz. He's on, he does a whole different level, but he mentioned one thing. And I think that's the most important thing is he got his influence of music from you. There was music that you well, were always playing and, and hearing that he was learning to hear. So my question is how much of that was intentional? You know, like, was it important? There was a point where it became intentional. I mean, at first it was just the fact that I was five years older and I had a bunch of records that I liked to play because I liked them. And older brothers, I don't know if either of you have younger brothers, but older brothers have a habit of, of insisting that their younger brothers like what they like. So it's right. kind of like you force feed him. It's like, hey, I'm a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Damn it, you're going to be a Brooklyn Dodger fan. You're going to be my little brother, and I'm going to watch your back. Then you got to, you know, you got to subscribe to whatever I'm into. So I, I suppose there was a little element of that, but um, you know, I think he developed his own taste pretty early on. Um, yeah, he's a hardcore jazz fan. Hardcore. Yeah, but, but so am I. But and and actually, I, I I want to correct you a little bit because our our tastes overlap a lot. Mm. Well, yeah. now what's interesting is that you know he it's just, just he, he's he's when it comes to jazz, he's a little more open minded for the outside stuff. Now I'm a little yeah. more traditional. Um. You know, he did say, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about how you brought him on board with with Prince when you started working with Prince. But he you know, you were a fan of Prince, you know, after seeing him live and after kind of seeing him, you were a True. fan of Prince. And and Eric, admittedly, on the show said, I did not like his stuff at all. He's still not a fan of Prince. <laughs> like, I, just, I mean, he's a, he's a he's a fan of the person, Prince yeah. Rogers Nelson. But yeah. I don't think he was ever a fan of Prince's music. I don't mean he disliked it. You know, Eric, Eric, um, the, the way he presents himself sometimes is 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 so assertive with his opinions. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, we're a couple of old Jews. That's what we do. That's just, you know, what else? You ever watch Larry David show? We're old Jews who have opinions and, and we want to share them with the world. Yeah. So, well, um, it's funny because he, he had a lot of that. I mean, he was he. Of course, you know, he when he had his leeway to work with the flesh and he had um you know a little bit of leeway with the Madhouse project. Listen, um Eric Eric has yeah. has more gratitude for the opportunities that Prince gave him absolutely than you could ever imagine. And he expresses that to me and others yes. whenever it's appropriate. He fully understands the opportunities Prince provided him, the exposure he provided him. And adores him for that and feels honored as much as he's going to feel honored. You know, um, I mean, I'm sure there's a part of him that as a brilliant musician, there's part of him that probably thinks to himself, well, if it wasn't for Prince, I would have found another way. You know, I would have made it anyway. I mean, he was right. a professional musician before Prince. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I think. And, and you know, I'm uncomfortable speaking for him, but I think that I think the main thing with Eric and Prince is that Eric just doesn't want to be defined by Prince, right? You know, right. he doesn't he doesn't want his tombstone to say Eric Leeds played with Prince, right? You know, yeah. he's he's done more than that, 
tons more. And he's done a lot of other things that are equally worthy, maybe not as successful in terms of exposure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's hard to match being on international tours and stadiums. But by the same token, it doesn't mean the music was any less worthy if right. you're playing in a club. Um, and I think that he has seen, and, and now I'm speaking for myself, there have been quite a few people who have come through Prince's world that have willingly allowed themselves to be defined by Prince. Hmm. They may not think so if you ask them that. They may not even be conscious of it. And I don't want to mention names and get in trouble because some of them are people that are, are, I, I, I love very much. Um, but you go on the road with Prince for five years and you have a long, long, long career. And I say, okay, where's your body of work? What else have you done? Yeah. And if the only answer is Prince, then it's like, I'm not sure what that says about you as a musician, that right. you either didn't have the talent or you didn't have the curiosity or, or the uh, creativity to do something equally worthy on your own or with other collaborators. Maybe it means you go on the road with Michael Jackson next or Janet Jackson or this one or that one. But where's your body of work? Hmm. What, right. what do you stand for when, when, when it's all said and done? And I think that, that, that what a lot of people misunderstand about Eric is that's his issue. It's like Prince was great. A great boss gave me amazing opportunities. I'm forever in his debt for that. Love the guy for what, you know, had, had a good relationship more times than not. Um, it was fascinating. I learned, he, he learned things from me working in the studio. I'm sure he'd be the first to admit and he brought something to Prince that Prince didn't have before. Um, but by the same token, it's like he's done a lot of other stuff. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I kind of feel the same way, too. And, and sometimes a little reluctant to do Prince-related interviews right. um, simply because it's like, it's, it's, I don't want to be known as, oh, that's the guy who worked for Prince. It's like, no, I work for all those other people. And guess what? All any of them ever were were my employer. Yeah, I mean, because we've been talking an excessive amount of time already, and and we 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 haven't really kind of. I mean, Prince has kind of entered in here and there, but we've been talking about all these phenomenal acts that that you've been working yeah, with. Yeah, and, and, and I appreciate that. And, and I, I didn't mean that comment. No, no, no I, I know that, that wasn't know directed that. at you guys or this or or, no, I, or I this broadcast. <laughs> No, and, and, and I heard that. That's one of the things that I heard. I mentioned, I, I heard that in a lot in the previous interviews you'd, you'd done. It was like, mm -hmm. okay, you know, what about Cameo? What about Kiss? We've heard, we had some other people that were saying, Kiss, well, what happened with Kiss? Right. The thing that occurs to me, I guess maybe because I'm, you know, quasi-retired and, and certainly retired from the road, um, you know, it, it, it really gets to the point, and this is maybe not that important for the point of this interview, this, this conversation we're having, which is a lot of fun, um, because you guys know your shit. But, you know, there's a point where you say, you know what, all of that was in my past. Mm -hmm. Every one of those artists was worthy. 
every one of them paid me on time. But guess what? It's like, if you want to talk to me about my life now, let's let's talk about my wife and son. You know what I mean? Because that's that's what goes on my tombstone is he was married to Gwen and had a son named Tristan and his parents were Herbert and Dorothy. That's that's who I am. That's who you are. Prince's guy, James Brown's guy. What I did have was a remarkable string of luck that I was able to have a 49, well, almost 50-year career basically getting paid for a hobby. I loved music. I wanted to be around it. I wanted. To, I was fascinated by the people who created it. I wanted to be around them and watch them work and try to understand how they did what they did and understand the music they made and fucking listen to it every night. Yeah, um, there's not a record in the world I would rather listen to than live music. That's just right. me, and yeah. I was fortunate enough to be able to get paid to do that shit. From the day I became a radio disc jockey, I'm like, you, the radio stations are gonna—they didn't pay much, but you're gonna pay me to play the same records I'd be sitting home playing. Right. Right. Get, out, get the fuck <laughs> out of here. This is this is this is good. Okay, and go on the road. And listen to James Brown with Bootsy in the band every night. Mm. Go on the road with D'Angelo and hear that shit every night. Go on the road with Prince with his various bands and hear that shit every night and get paid to be there. You know, who who does that? Life goals. so, (laughs) So, you know, that's not who I am. It's what I did. Hmm. And who I am goes back to Glenn and Tristan and my brother, and you know we're a small family, and you know that's and, who I am. So speaking of which, the problem with fans and interviews and so on is that too many times they're trying to identify with anybody who had anything to do with Prince. Right. The yeah. hairdresser writes a book. The photographer's do a book. Now, some of these are great books. Don't misunderstand me. Yeah. But this, this fascination <laughs> with any of us who had anything to do with Prince, and it's like, yo, dude, get a life. Yeah. Listen to the music. Love the music. And, you know, once a year, read an interview. Okay, cool. But it's like, really? Yeah, Jeff and I Jeff and I talk about this a lot, where it's like the name of the website is Funkatopia. Funkatopia not <laughs> it's not Princeatopia. <laughs> right, right. Of course. Of course. But I see what and and you don't probably don't know some of the, the backstory of, of this, but the, one of the reasons why Funkatopia is as large as it is right now is is primarily because of Prince right. and his because before he passed away, I mean starting at about two thousand four, two thousand five. He started regularly talking about the website. Anytime that we posted something about him, he would sure. put it on his Twitter account and his Facebook, which was weird because I, you know, I was the only sole person. I was kind of like you. I was running the own my own thing. And then it just started becoming a regular habitual thing. And uh, he started sending a lot of his artists my way. Liv Warfield, Shelby J, all those people would be coming on a regular basis to do. Mm-hmm. He would let them do interviews and talk about it and. He, and it was one of the last tweets that he did before he died was to post about Funkatopia. And no. I was just like, I can't, I was just surprising that I was even on his radar. So, and I know a lot of the fans kind of come in as a result of that. 
and yeah, uh, it's great. And, it's so, great. And, and so we catered to that. But this is one of the reasons why I really was excited to have you on the show because there, because while there are print stories that we can use to cater to these people, there are so many stories that I want to hear from you about things uh, other than prints. And um, speaking of which, I mean, before we get off the subject, is Tristan following in your footsteps? Mm. Um, not really. He's a hippie and he's living in Vermont and which he loves and he hates. Um, he loves the, the, the sanctity of it. Yeah. Um, being off the beaten path in a safe situation and just, you know, in a community where you can leave your door open and walk mm. the streets at night. And if the police come by, they wave hello and they know your name instead of trying to beat you up. He loves that part of it. But by the same token, I think he misses the fast track. So he's kind of wrestling with, okay, how long am I going to stay here and where am I going to go? He's very much into photography and film, um, not yet on a professional level, but I have a sense at some point he may try to um, jump in that boat. Um, he did do a couple of tours uh, just, just so that we could be together on a couple of occasions. He came on the road. He, he knew D'Angelo. He and D'Angelo actually are the same age. And he'd known really? D for probably since, well, I guess since the Voodoo tour. And um, so on one of our European tours in the mid-2000s, 2015, 14, I forget what year, um, he jumped on the crew and, and worked as a stagehand and uh, assistant on the crew. So we could be on the road together in Europe. And that was the best tour I ever had just because he and I were together. D'Angelo wow. is amazing. And one of the st stories, it's one of my, my the random questions that, that I had. Um, you obviously were in this profession uh, before cell phones. So people had phones and people had, you know, pagers eventually came into the mix as well. And uh, can, I, can I stop? I'm sorry, Christopher. Can I stop you for just a second? Sure. I want to add to this. Tristan is my Spotify. <laughs> he sends me links. <laughs> my daughter is my Spotify. And yeah. of music, and it could be anything. It could be something that's Nigerian. It could be Latin. His girlfriend is, is, awesome. is Puerto Rican. Um, and so he, he he hears Latin music. Um, he's a child of hip hop. I mean, he grew up in he grew up with yeah. hip hop. He's that generation. So he's like a textbook of hip hop history. And I mean, he sends me links to stuff that I would never find on my own. And have right, ended yeah. up going out buying CDs and checking out stuff. And it's usually very obscure stuff. And I love him for that. So he's he's my Spotify, and there, there it is genre and cliche free. There's there's no genre is 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 off off limits and nothing clicheish. That's so, amazing. You know, anyway, you were saying. I'm sorry. No, no, my 19 year old daughter is the same way. My 19 year old daughter Jolie, she is um she's my Spotify because she listens to she she likes to go down those rabbit holes. That's, she yeah. doesn't like to really pay attention to too much stuff on the radio. Like we we do have a kindred spirit in one artist that's on the radio right now, which is Billie Eilish. Um just because mm -hmm. of the production stuff that she that her brother Phineas does is just mm -hmm. unlike anything I have ever heard before. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wish she would do more with her voice, but on the same note, she just has this really kind of engaging tone, but the production and the music is just like, wow. It's just so fantastic. So yeah, she's the same way. She's my Spotify. Mm-hmm. Um, but to get back to the question, what I was going to say was, was that um, a lot of these artists that you've worked with, this laundry list of artists that you've worked with would call you at many hours of the night and leave messages on your answering machine. And I heard that you actually maintain recordings. You've, you've somehow managed to keep some of these recordings of, uh, of, of from some of these artists. And I, I was hoping that you would be able to share some of your favorites that you... See, uh, I, 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 I can't... I shouldn't agree with that because <laughs> nobody, nobody will call me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they don't leave his answering service is a little bit different now. Well, I, I, I think the best one is is Amir um, Questlove because once when he was here, I played him. I, I assembled years ago. I assembled them all on a cassette, and it was you know it's 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 you know mom and pop. I would just just copy them off the phone machine, put a microphone to the speaker of the phone machine. So the fidelity is like whack, but right, yeah. you, know, you can hear who it is. And there's James Brown and there's Prince and a handful of other people. Um, but I played it for Amir <laughs> and he was fascinated. He's like, oh my God, this is so crazy. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's just little stuff. It was, you know, James Brown calling me to come down to a hotel to see him one night. And he left like three or four messages in a row over a period of about 15 minutes while Gwen and I were out to dinner. And I came in and each message, his voice is a little louder. And the last one is like, you rap? I know you're there, son. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. It's a godfather. Pick up the phone. I mean, it's hysterical. Um, and then there's Prince, who never ever had any political niceties when he would call. Gwen might answer the phone. Is Alan there? Not at mind you, he knows Gwen. She's babes, she's house sat for him. Right. She's done his laundry. You know what I mean? It's it's like wait, this is not a stranger. Wait, your wife did it Prince's laundry? Well I'm exaggerating, but, but know, I mean, she did house it. She did house uh, it. Yeah, we a couple of times be, be um before, Paisley Park or some other location. No, the old purple house. Okay. The one that he ended up giving to his dad. <laughs> In fact, she has a great story of how there were some fans outside the gate, and she was there was a, 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 a the gate was maybe oh 50 yards from the house on the street. The house was maybe 50 yards back, and she was house sitting and um she would actually take our laundry and go do it there. So she'd have something to do. <laughs> That's where the laundry came from. But at any rate, so there's three, she noticed three or four fans, what she assumed were fans out by the gate. And they were just looking at the purple house. So she's curious. So she puts on the, there's the intercom where you can, you know, talk to whoever's at the gate. She puts the speaker on to see what they're saying. But she hits the wrong button and opens the gate. <laughs> oh, no. So they start cautiously looking around, looking over their shoulder. Is it safe? Is it safe? Because they don't see a human being. And they start walking through the gate. 
And she's like, oh my God, what have I done? He's going to, if he ever finds out, he'll freak out. He'll fire me. He'll fire Alan. It's like the worst thing that ever happened is they're, they're on the grounds, right? And this is back, this is in the, this is in the 80s. It's like post-purple right. purple rain, oh, no. you know, give or take a year. And, and she's like freaking out and she can't figure out how to close the gate, but it doesn't matter because they're in now. So she's, you know, girlfriend's from New Jersey. She knows how to hang. So she's like, okay, I got to make lemonade. So she went out there and met them. And she says, as long as I can cut them off, I'll just act like I did it on purpose. Like, hey, Prince is out of town. This is his house. He bought it two years ago. That window is his bedroom. That window is his studio. And there's a lake out back, but I can't allow you to go around. So this is as far as you can go. So she was like Miss Nice Tour Manager and charmed him for like 10 minutes and then said, okay, sorry, but you got to leave. And they left. <laughs> so, wow. You know, but, but point being, he knows her. Okay. Yeah. And he calls the house. Alan there? Not even is. There's not even an is Alan. It's just Alan there. And, you know, she'd say, yes, Prince, how are you today? You know, just to fuck with him. <laughs> and then hand me the phone. And he was used to it, and she was used to it. And it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't a thing. It was just how we rolled. He, that's how he called people. Right? So I have on the answering machine, it's like, Alan, this is Prince. Please call me. <laughs> it's not much more than that. Um, but but Amir heard this stuff. So about a month later, for whatever reason he had, he called here and the phone machine was on. We were out. And he said, and now this is on the roll call. He said, thank God I got the answering machine. Now I feel like I've actually made it in this business. I'm on your roll call. So that's his message, right? <laughs> oh my god! I mean, it's, it's a pretty nerdy thing to do in the first place, but it started with the James Brown one because that shit was so priceless. And um, then it was like, okay, that's kind of cool to keep. Maybe I'll get a few more. And I heard uh, D'Angelo leave messages on your answering machine. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Any so any. I heard that Miles Davis left a uh, machine. Tell, Tell that, that purple, you know, Miles talked real raspy. Yeah. Tell that purple motherfucker to call me. Quote <laughs> <laughs> well, unquote. No, he said he said little purple motherfucker. <laughs> I'm sure you probably made that connection. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. That's so great. Um, that's no, if, 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 listen, if, if it wasn't for Prince, I would have never met Miles Davis. So if, if, if you know, that that's that's maybe the most exciting thing to happen. So, I mean, you came on with, with Prince uh, during the end of the 1999 tour. Um, yes. How, how was that first night walking into that situation? I mean, were there... I mean, when, you, when you're first kind of going in and you're kind of analyzing not only, you know, how people are... I guess welcoming you in if that's even a thing, uh, because you're kind of coming in and anytime somebody new gets added, it's like, nah. uh, 
but where there could you stop yourself from analyzing uh well you know looking at what how james did things and how prince did things and go oh yeah some of there's some what are some similarities to the way they ran their show and what did your first night look like there well the, the biggest similarity was simply that they were both perfectionists yeah and insisted on outstanding musicians and uber rehearsed so that um not so much that there couldn't be something spontaneous in the show if he felt like it, but the band would be so rehearsed that whatever he signaled for them to do, they were right there on his on his butt, right there with him. Um, that was the, the first, but I, I had kind of suspected that of Prince. After seeing, I saw the controversy show on the controversy tour, and... That was a super, super tight. And I just walked out of there. It's like, oh, my God, this shit is tight. Everything is tight. The sound, the lights, the lights are musical. They're artistic. It isn't just somebody flashing a bunch of lights. It's it's like it's like the lighting director's part of the band. And that, that, that made an impression on me. So once I got there, I, I, I kind of knew what to expect. I knew how he rolled, at least artistically. Yeah. But the experience was was really bizarre, partially because I had just left the KISS tour. The KISS tour was a suit and tie gig. Which their seems thing, so weird. That's weird no, they, to me. Their, their thing was, and maybe it's because they wore such bizarre outfits, um, that they wanted all of their business people, their management people, Look in Madison Avenue. So I'm out there on the road with a, a, a bag full of like two or three pinstripe Madison Avenue Brooks Brothers suits and ties and, you know, <laughs> playing that role because that's what the gig called for, right? Um, there were two shows left on the KISS tour. It was winding down and I'm in catering and a fellow named Tommy Marzullo, who was the production manager, coincidentally for both Prince and Kiss. And he comes to me and he says, so what are you doing after the tour's over? I said, well, I'll go home and wait for the phone to ring like any freelancer. And he said, well, you got any interest in Prince because his 1999 tour, they're going through road managers like, like, like water and um, they're looking for somebody. And I said, hell yeah, that's, you know, when does it start? And he says, well, the tour has been on the road for several months, so they're already established and rolling, so your gig shouldn't be too difficult, but they need you immediately. And um, they're willing to send somebody to interview. We were playing Universal Amphitheater in L.A. the next day with Kiss. And Jamie Shoup, who had been one of Prince's road managers, but right. worked in the management, she actually worked for Stephen Farnoli in the management office, she came out to Universal Amphitheater, interviewed me. Um, we rode back to town together after the show, and um, I got hired. So I left the KISS tour. I asked them if they'd let me go a little early in order to take this Prince game. So I literally got off of one tour, and the next day jumped on the next. The gig was in San Diego, the Prince tour. I remember walking up the ramp of the arena in San Diego, which coincidentally I had just played with Kiss like two nights earlier. I mean, it was it was crazy. And there were people people backstage who had said, what, you again? You back with, you know, made no sense. 
Like he just left here with Kiss and now he's back with, with, with this guy two days later. But I walk in and of course I've got like a Madison Avenue suit on and I think I had a trench coat or something and a briefcase and a suitcase of shoulder bag with my clothes and everybody's in sweats. Everywhere I look, there's purple sweats. <laughs> the promoter, Billy Sparks, he's got sweats on. Oh, Billy. <laughs> the, the band has sweats on. <laughs> Morris and the Time hanging out have sweats. Everybody. Oh, my God. Vanity and the Girls got sweats on. And they looked at me like I was the tax man that had just um, <laughs> you know, shut him down. Right, right. and, and so there was definitely a curiosity and then I find um, Stephen Farnoli introduce myself. We talk for a while, and he says, "Okay, don't don't be pushy with Prince. Let him warm up to you. Let him get to know you. He'll let you know when 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 you're in, but don't don't press up because he doesn't like that." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. You, you want to pay me not to work? It's cool. <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> Whatever." However you guys want to roll, I'm just here to help, okay? Yeah. Um, so he introduces me to Big Chick, the bodyguard, Chick Hunsbury. And we get to know each other a little bit, and I run out real quick. I find a runner to send out to some store to buy me some sweats. They weren't purple, but <laughs> at least let me get out of this suit, right? Right. And, um, and then a couple of days later, I had to I had to do some hotel booking for future cities that were coming up in the following weeks. And like any artist, every artist has their own preferences for the types of hotels. And you know, the artists I worked for were very particular. So I said, I better go to Prince. And we had met, I mean, we shook hands the first day. He said, Welcome aboard. And that was it, you know, nothing else. And I would go. Just before they were going to go on stage, he and the band, um, I would go to the dressing room door and walk him to the stage. If there was anything unusual about the venue that he should know, I would tell him. Um, sometimes Chick would send me to go look at the crowd because Prince wanted to know if it was predominantly black or white because his set list depended on the answer. Um, but that was the limit of it. We didn't have any real dialogue. Huh. So I needed to talk to him about these hotels. So I go to Chick and I said, do you knock on the door for me? I really got to talk to Prince. I got to make some decisions in a hurry about some, some future hotels. And Chick, of course, had a Southern drawl that went with his look. The bib overalls and the Southern drawl just went together like, like, <laughs> like milk and cereal. And, and he said, well, buddy, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I looked at him and I said, well, what, is he in a bad mood or something? No, it's not that. But if you go ask him something like that, he's going to think you don't know what to do yourself. He's going to think you don't know your job and you're asking him to do it for you. <laughs> and I'm like, really? It's like that? And so I said, okay, forget Prince. Hey, Chick, what kind of hotels is he like? <laughs> you know, it's like, now I got to trust that Chick is going to give me the real deal. You know, because if Chick doesn't like me, he could send me to the wrong hotel and get me fired. So it's like, okay, I got to trust this guy that I just met two days ago. But whatever. Um, it worked out. That's so good. I was on the tour about a week before Prince and I had any meaningful dialogue at all, other than just, hello, 
How are you today? Just, you know, the, the bare minimum of conversation. And we had a show in St. Louis. It was either St. Louis, Kansas City. Can't remember which. And um, after the show, I was in the, the hotel lobby bar with Bobby Z. Fink was there. I think Brown Mark was there. I think the whole band was there anyway. And we were at this, this we got our drinks and we sat at this huge round table in this hotel lobby bar. And we're just sitting there kicking it and everybody's in a good mood. It was a good show. And we're just, you know, talking about whatever, who knows the weather or basketball. I don't know what we're talking about. And all of a sudden we look up and here comes Prince and Chick across the lobby in our direction. So the first thing I noticed is that everybody got quiet. The whole joyous atmosphere just kick one away. <laughs> it was a wrap. It was over. Everybody got tense. You could just uh, see everybody go like this. And I'm like, what the fuck? What is wrong with these people? You know, yeah. it's like you just had a great show. And, and what are you scared of? What the what what what's this about? So I'm my, my radar is just all over the place. I don't know what to make of this yet. This weird guy who doesn't come out of his room, he doesn't talk to people. None of it makes sense to me. So as luck would have it, the one vacant seat was next to me. So, of course, you know who comes and promptly sits down next to me. And the whole table's quiet because they're all waiting to see why is he here. He doesn't usually hang out in the hotel bars. I think that's the only time I ever, you probably count on one hand the times. Only time I ever saw him go to a hotel bars if they had a piano. And he might go down there and actually play the piano. Wow, that's cool. I yeah. saw that a couple of times. But other, yeah. I mean, this is not a guy who hung out in hotel bars. He just didn't. So I guess the band was figuring, is he going to cuss him out? Did they miss a hit? Did, 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 did something about the show or what? You know, they didn't know what to expect because it was so unusual. He sat down next to me. The whole table's quiet. And it was one of those weird quiets where, where you just say, oh, shit, what's going to happen? <laughs> Right. And then he just calmly turns in my direction and he says, tell me some James Brown stories. <laughs> he knew I had worked for James Brown. Supposedly, according to Farnoli, that's why he hired me, that he figured if I could handle James Brown, I could handle him. Um, and that's awesome. that I, I don't remember what I told him. I wish I could remember what stories I told him, but I, I, I'm pretty good at thinking on my feet. I might have made something up. Who knows? But I gave, he wanted James Brown stories. He gets James Brown stories. And from that point on, we talked like old friends. That, that was, that was the, the moment. From then on, I couldn't get him to shut up. It was like, please stop calling. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, love, I love the the mention of Billy Sparks because he is such an he is such a funny character. I met him one time. Um, we were, it was at a show and I can't remember what it was. But I was out in the lobby and Billy was on the phone, and I walked up to him and I said, I said, "Oh, Billy, it's an honor to meet you." I said, "Can I get your autograph?" And he goes, "I ain't signing a goddamn thing." <laughs> really. <laughs> He said, "He said, no offense, but if I put my name on something, it's because <laughs> he's oh, that's funny. I think it's because he was in the middle of a, a 
I, he must have had some type of legal thing going on or whatever, and he was just he just didn't want to right. So <laughs> wrong question at the wrong time. Billy, Billy is a sweetheart. Uh, yeah, he was funny. He, I, he I, did I'll it with, give, a, did it with you, a file. He did it. I'll with give a you file. a print story. I'll give you a print story <laughs> that's not funny, but is important to the history. And I've never read this. Billy Sparks is a very private person. Billy deserves enormous credit for Prince's elements of Prince's career. And I'll tell you why. After Purple Rain, there was a bit of a backlash at Black Radio about Prince. Because the feeling was, okay, he's outgrown us. Now he's crossed over. He's a rock star. He's untouchable. He's not doing interviews. And the black media has a thing about like, hey, if we played your records long before those white stations played them, brother, without us, you wouldn't have never got to first base. And now yeah. you're on home plate with the white boys. You're on Dick Clark. You're, you know, you're, you're the shit now. And what about us? Do you remember us? Billy Sparks single-handedly handled PRN Productions, Paisley Park, whatever you want to call it, relations mm -hmm. with black media. He was the guy who knew all the main players from Tom Joyner on down in black radio. And because of his relationships, they continued playing Prince records when sometimes they didn't even fit the format because they were too pop. Yeah. Mm. He did the same with the black press. And it was a very specific strategy because all of the publicity now for Prince was in mainstream media. And black media felt dissed. Billy was the guy who saved that those relationships and turned it around and made most of black media understand that just because he's crossed over, this is not some Uncle Tom who forgets where he came from. Mm. And yeah. all of that credit belongs to Billy Sparks. I can't think of another single person. Nobody at Warner Brothers. Nobody yeah. else in our office. It was all about Billy. And I understood that pretty early on because it's, it, it, you know, I... I Billy was one of the promoters when I came aboard and one of the first to, to open up to me. And I think he was just curious, like everybody else. It's like, here comes this white guy with these suits on. And he's like so different from anybody here. He doesn't fit. What's the deal with him? Who's he? Did, did this the accountant send him? Did Farnoli, is he a spy for Farnoli? I think they wanted to figure out what's what's the angle. It's got to be more than just a just a last minute road manager. There has to be something else going on. Here's your brother. Brothers in the season. I can't thank Billy enough for all of his support for me through the years. Hey, Eric, how are you doing, brother? Eric. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he worked, he worked at Eric's solo albums and the Madhouse stuff to death. The jazz radio stations we didn't even know existed. Billy found them. Bill, Billy's an angel and and really deserves credit. Um, as much as, as as much as anybody who was in the managerial and promotion end of Prince's career, and, and Prince understood it, and and had a had a relationship with Billy that lasted 
well into the 90s, if not, I don't yeah. know when they finally stopped working together. Yeah, but. that's when I met him was was the 90s. And yeah. I, that was that was just a really, really funny moment because that was just like, because that was the first time I, you know, and I didn't know how to take him. And he was just so funny and accommodating, but he was just like, yeah, but I'm not signing anything. You know, yeah, what's well, funny, it's, it's a, the funny thing about Billy, too, is, is that the role he played in the film is very much real. I mean, he didn't have to act. That's part of Billy. There is there is that side of him that is 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 exactly like how he was portrayed in the film. However, there's another side to him that's extremely serious, intelligent. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a in a in a college town around smart people and reads a lot. I mean, Billy Sparks is 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 more than one thing. Yeah, and I think the public only knows the one thing, and that's the kind of character that was in the movie, which was fun and loving and so on, but kind of one-dimensional. And there's there's a lot more to Billy than that, and he he deserves a lot of credit. And I never hear anybody talk about it. And I think part of the reason is that I don't think he's ever done interviews, and I assume that's by his choice. Why do you think it now aligning that with the other artists that you've worked with? Why do you think that? that black radio had such a love hate relationship with Prince, but never ever let go of uh, Maxwell. We've worked with D'Angelo who you've worked with uh, Raphael Sadiq, who you work with. Why do you think that they, that relationship, because technically a lot of those artists did still kind of do the same experimental type of music. They kind of, you know, dip in and out of R and B, but they still kind of go off on their own. What do you think? What's the difference in their eyes? Do you think, as far as how Black Radio embraces those particular artists? But with Prince, it was kind of like, meh. Well, in the case of Maxwell and Sadiq, their music is pretty much, they've always, I mean, experimental and versatile, yes. But they always kind of make sure to try to have at least one or two joints on their records that are format friendly for black radio. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Particularly because they've never really crossed over to pop radio. That's, that's their only outlet. Right. So, um, you know, they know what they're doing. I mean, you know, Raphael's an amazing writer, but he he could write a tune for the Rolling Stones as quick as he can write one for D'Angelo and they'd be equally great. But he also knows that the only people that are liable to play a Raphael Sadiq record right now is Black Radio. He's not going to get a lot of play on pop radio. It's just not it's not that time yet. I hope, I hope his day comes. He deserves it. Mm-hmm. He makes remarkable records. Really does. Um, you know, with Maxwell, it's 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 almost an entirely black thing. I mean, does he, yeah, does yeah, he have yeah. white fans? Of course he does. But in terms of defining his music, it's it's pretty much straight ahead black music. Now, D'Angelo's a whole other story because yeah, Black Messiah make... was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like way, yeah. It, it, it's a bit, there's parts of it that are pretty out there, um, yeah. but but there were a couple of joints on there that were that were oh, accessible. Yeah. Great album, fantastic. Um, but but by the same token, D is the kind of artist that never makes a song for a specific reason. I mean, if you went to him and said, hey, this album is great, but you need one more song, you need a hit, he'd look at you like you were crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even think he recognizes why songs are hits. 
Mm. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Untitled is any different to him than yeah. hard pressed for a title than Devil's Pie or something that's a little more out, less radio friendly. He doesn't listen to radio. He listens to WBGO in Newark jazz radio. Yeah. Which you get it, it's a Newark station, but it serves New York. Yeah. And basically when he's riding around town, he's listening to that. Um he doesn't listen to pop radio. Um he's usually pretty late in knowing when somebody blows up. Mm. Um because if 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 a friend of his doesn't come to him and say, Hey, you gotta check out this van hunt, or you gotta check out Billy Eilish. If without that, without mm. that reference, he never would. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so many art. Yeah. Again, we we had talked about this before. There were so many amazing uh, artists that are out there right now that um, are just. just I mean, in, in, including Prince. Despite Prince, D'Angelo is the purest artist I've ever worked with. Just in terms of being a pure artist. Mm. In the sense of if he was a painter, he would be some guy living in a in a lonely house on the top of the hill, painting canvases, abstracts, <laughs> never even coming down to show him. <laughs> He's that guy. And as a result, the music is anything he it he feels like on any given day, which became a horrendous challenge to try to channel into a career in terms of, um, you know, sequencing records and finding something that you can promote in the media with the prejudices and, and, the, and the, the, the barricades that, that, that various elements of the media have, um, because you can't pigeonhole him anywhere. I mean, the first record, Brown Sugar, yes, that was a pretty... Pretty. Yeah. It, was, it yeah. was a great record, but unmistakably a mainstream black music record. Yeah. But you know, starting with Voodoo, it's like, dude, go for it. Now, as a music fan, I adore everything he does. It's great. But yeah. if you're going to sit there and say, okay, how are you going to promote this shit into into a career that's going to sell enough tickets to support the kind of show he wants to take on the road? It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't had any misses yet. That, that no. I mean, it, it's always been like vastly different from album to album. But there's yeah. not really been, you know, a whole bunch of misses. W what year did you come on with with Prince? Was that 1983 or 80? Well, it was the, the, the 1999 tour. I finished the tour, but that was as a freelancer. So I went home and actually was on the road with Cameo when I got a call from Farnoli to come to Minneapolis. And that was in 83. It was August of 83. Did you happen to uh, see by chance uh, this fiasco? Where it's Michael Jackson and James Brown on stage, or Paul Prince on stage, which plays guitar for a little bit. And then, of course, uh, as, as things kind of go over, Badly, it's not doing anything for the crowd. Of course, this is a James Brown show, and he called Michael Jackson on the stage, he called Prince on the stage. And then uh, Prince decides that uh, this is 
like a, a, one of these iconic mythos things. And he, and he doesn't realize that the lamp of the stage is the top, and he falls up in the audience and that. And then, and then Chris is never seen again. That's a little portion of James Brown kind of comes out. But I don't know if you've ever seen that video. Yeah, of course. Uh, were you there during yeah. that period of time? There I was so in I was in Minneapolis and I got a call late late that night from Bobby Z, who was with Prince. <laughs> at, 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 was, that was the Beverly Theater in Beverly Hills, mm. and um, Bobby Z was with him at that gig, and he called me. It's like, yo, man, you're not going to believe what happened tonight. <laughs> did he talk about Prince falling in the stage, or did he talk about the yeah, fact that told me the whole Prince thing? Because there's so much, so many legendary stories about that. that Quincy Jones did some interview and said that after the show that Prince was so upset and so embarrassed by it that he tried to run Michael Jackson and his mom over. So Oh my gosh, this yeah. is craziness. No, I was just no. like, I wonder if Alan was there for any of this. To kind of I, sort I, of I wasn't there, out. but I got, I got the lowdown from oh, all three of God. Bobby Chick and when Prince got home a couple of days later, I got his version too. Oh, what, um, what was Prince's version? It was just, you know, affirming what happened and that he was really pissed off because Michael set him up. Right. The real story is Michael set him up. Well, James didn't know anything about Prince. He may have heard his name and realized that there was an artist named Prince. He didn't know what he looked like. He didn't know anything about Prince. When Michael's on stage, if you watch the whole clip. Yeah. Now, James has known Michael since he's five years old. He's like a stepson, like a godson. Yeah, Michael used to come to his shows and sit in the wings and study him, and and James has literally known him since he was a, a, a kid, right? So the idea of Michael coming on stage was not at all unusual. Michael goes up, he does his bit, does his moonwalk or whatever the hell he does, and shrieks a couple times, and the people go crazy. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's Michael, you know, Michael Jackson, and. <laughs> You see Michael whisper in James's ear. If you watch the video, he's in James's ear telling him to call Prince up. Now, mind you, this is a period of time where Prince is starting to challenge Michael. And the little magazines for the teenagers, like Black Beat yep. Magazine and some of the other little magazines yeah. that used to be on the newsstands, they were already saying, is Prince the new Michael Jackson? I mean, they were starting to build it. The press was building up a rivalry. Michael's and James is here telling him to call Prince. And then Prince calls him up. And you can even see by Prince's tone of voice. He did, he's, he's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Okay, Prince, yeah, Prince, Prince, come on up, Prince. You know, whatever. It's like he's not even really excited about it. So Prince gets up there and he doesn't know what the hell to do. Michael Jackson has just freaking worked the stage. You don't follow Michael Jackson. Right. What are you going to do? And, and the thing that Prince can do that Michael can't do is play a guitar. Right. So he borrows a guitar. But the song is just a riff. It's just a vamp. And there's nothing really to do on a guitar. All they could do is play rhythm. It's not the kind of thing you could really solo and show up. I mean, it ain't Purple Rain. Yeah, it's a James Brown band. Right? Yeah. So he gets tired of the guitar, realizes that ain't working. So that's where you showed the clip began, where he came up to the front of the stage and started trying to clap the hands and just get people into something. Because Prince had Prince was at a loss. He really didn't know what to do. 
and he hated the fact that he was up there. And then he finally figures he's been there enough. Now it's time to, it, 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 it's time to exit. And, um, you know, he's jumping off the stage and he doesn't realize that that, that, that street lamp is just a cardboard prop. It's not a rigid thing. He's, he's <laughs> grabbing it to get leverage to jump off stage. And of course it, it he tears the stage down, tears the prop down with him, which was just the coup de grace. So it, it was, you know, one of his very embarrassing moments. And um, yeah, I, I never really, I never really thought of it because that's one of the questions that I had is was about this, um, the Michael Jackson Prince rivalry that that was kind of concocted, not really concocted because I mean, technically, they were like the first two black artists that we got to see on MTV. Right, they both you know, felt it. Yeah, it's, it was, but it. It, and that's that. It kind of like set up this. It was kind. It the whole thing was like a setup. But the magazines always pitted them against each other. Sure. A lot. Who's sure? Care? They're, Who's they're trying to sell magazines. I get that. And and what? if you buy into it, you buy into it. I mean, it was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yeah. So, you know, we didn't know about Michael Jackson creeping around the bedrooms and you know, the little boys at the time or whatever he did or didn't do. Um, you know, there was no scandal about Michael yet. So he's, 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 everybody's, everybody in America raised Michael Jackson. They're, they're proud of Michael Jackson from a little kid to Jackson five. And now he's, you know, beat it or Billy Jean, whatever the records were. I don't know if that was out yet, but I think so. And, um, you know, he's now this super, super, superstar. And then you got Prince who at that particular time is known for the body lyrics and, right. you know, working on stage in bikinis and right. really, really pushing boundaries. So it's it's the Rolling Stones and it's the Beatles. And it, it was it was just a great you couldn't invent something better. It was just perfect. Did you ever get a chance to meet Michael? No. Yeah. Did did, did Prince ever talk about Michael Jackson at all as far as like the rivalry or did he even feel even? Yeah. They they no. apparently played ping pong for a couple of minutes. Um, <laughs> you know he he kind of. I mean, look, Prince 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 certainly respected Michael. There's no question. But was he ever? Did he feel threatened by Michael's level of success, or just kind of like, okay, we're on our own? Did he ever mention anything like that? Yeah. No, no, because that would show a lack of confidence or insecurity that, that to, to mention that in, in Prince's mind, to mention that would be showing weakness. So no, that he was, he was much too macho to, to ever admit that that would get under his skin, but I'm, I'm sure they both felt it a little bit. Um, you read that shit long enough. It's, it's going to affect you. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, Prince was the type that after Purple Rain blew up, it would be, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to sit there and say, hi, has Michael made any movies lately? <laughs> you, know, <he's>, you know, he wasn't above snide remarks. Yeah, we, he, definitely, I, he definitely was in a hurry to tell everybody in our camp that Michael couldn't play ping pong. I, I <laughs> no, well, Nobody could beat. But I, 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 might, I might, might add that back to the James Brown concert. As oh, soon yeah. as he came off stage, Prince left. Hmm. He was out. So any rumors about what happened after the show are bullshit. He was gone. Yeah, I, I have a problem with I. While I have nothing but mad respect for Quincy, I did get an opportunity to meet him too. But I was a I was like 
13 or 14. I really didn't know his body of work. Uh, while I have nothing but respect for him, he he's not a huge Prince fan. So a lot of the stories that he normally has to share about Prince are, are not very yeah. glowing. I don't think I don't think <laughs> he ever got going. over. He, he he. I don't think Quincy ever got over the we are the world. world. Yeah, yeah. Because I think he took that as a personal diss. Well, of course he did. He he called him personally, and tried to change his mind. Mm. And, and um, Prince rejected him. And that video of, the, of Prince sucking on that lollipop during that award show. <laughs> Prince takes the lollipop out of his mouth and, and gets it to Quincy. And Quincy was actually going to put it in his mouth. Yeah, that, that was weird. Right. That, I was that, like, that was weird. <laughs> Oh, I don't know that what's happening, weird. but that's classic video. Right there. I don't know what that is, but I want to watch it again. Quincy is great, though. He's, he's, he's got Quincy has amazing stories. Do you think I got stories? Talk to that oh, guy. Oh, yeah. He's doing the stuff with Sinatra. I didn't realize all his involvement with Sinatra and all that stuff. I was just oh, like, man. Oh, man, what's well, just mind boggling? Unreal. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, there is a picture a lot of people, um, I see if you search for uh, pictures of Eric Leeds and and Prince, people always show this photo. And it's like uh, that's that's Alan. <laughs> <laughs> and even in one of the um, <clears throat> hey, I'm back in the suits. <laughs> yeah. uh, even in one of the um, in one of our broadcasts when I when out when Eric was on the show the first time, we I had a bunch of photos that were in a folder and and it picked this one. I was like, ugh. And Eric was, like, Eric was like, that's my brother, Alan. I was just like, yeah, sorry about that. Um, that's all right. I, I get Facebook messages asking if I'm still playing sax and who I'm playing with. <laughs> and, you know, like. um, this this picture here, um, Prince doesn't take a lot of photos with, with people. Matter of fact, there's not a whole bunch of uh, people that are had the opportunity to get their picture taken with Prince. And for whatever reason, you're in like this whole string of uh, shots with Prince. What, where is this? And, and, you know, obviously this was a little bit of a setup, um, but. Man, That's an you, elevator in an airport. In an air. Okay. Yep. And it's either Paris or London. And we had just come through immigration and we were going to, uh, we were either, I don't, I don't. I don't remember if we were flying in or flying out, but it's it's um, it's an elevator in an airport, and a photographer jumped in the elevator just as the door was closing. Wow, that's... and it was some paparazzi, and they got this and got several shots, and we couldn't do anything about it until the elevator stopped. Eric says Eric says it was in Japan. Okay, he's probably right. <laughs> Yeah, he remembers I'm, everything. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he's right. <laughs> he remembers what you had for dinner when you went on your family as vacation. As a matter of fact, Eric might be in Japan. <laughs> and if he interrupts my broadcast anymore, I'm going to send him to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's uh, more Eric, than welcome. Yeah, Eric said he just arrived in Europe. So yeah. he's, that's, that's where he's at. Um, yeah, it is kind of shocking how much you do look like your brother in this period of time. That was that. And you, he you looks like you, me, five yeah, years old. Right, that's right. You're five years yeah, old. Right. That's right. You're right. He looks like you. That's correct. Let's get Poor it. Guy. Um, yeah, and you said you got approached quite a bit of people saying, 
you know, hey, are you playing sax anymore? Was that happen on a regular basis during this time period? You said. No, it happens more now. Oh, it, oh. because people just it just you know people just oh leads that's the guy who played sax with Prince you know. Uh, I don't know what this means anything, but Eric said mushy mushy. Yeah, of does, course. Does that mean something that's, to you? It's Japanese. Oh, is it? What yeah. is it? Japanese? What does it mean? Look it up. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll look it up. It, it's clean. Facebook won't throw you off. It's, it's, okay. It's, let me say this. I finally thought yes. of an answer to your question that had, oh, had me puzzled about influence. And I think the best advice I ever got was actually from Eric. When we were kids and he first started playing saxophone, I would take garbage cans and turn them over because I had taken, I, I actually took drums in school. This is grade school now. I took drums in school for about two weeks before I quit, which is a whole other story. But I had drumsticks and I had fantasies about, you know, being such a music fan and loving not just singers, but the music and so on. I had fantasies of what it would be like to grow up and be a musician. Now, the, the fantasies weren't serious enough for me to have the patience or the discipline to learn an instrument. I never did. Um, however, I had these drumsticks. So when he got to the point where he could play sax well enough to play along with records that we liked, we had Ray Charles records and Little Richard records and whatever the hell we had at the time. And he would play along with them just as most kids do when they're starting out. And I would take garbage cans and turn them over and create a drum set because I wanted to play with him. I'm the big brother, little brother. He's playing sax. I think that's mad cool. And I want to be part of this shit. So I would start banging on the cans. Now, mind you, I could keep time. I mean, I had a sense of rhythm, so it wasn't like I was really screwing it up. He may differ, but his advice was, I'm the musician in the family. Do us both a favor. Don't play drums. <laughs> that was the best advice I ever got. <laughs> because if I had taken, if I had continued to play drums, I probably would have been a second rate drummer playing in some lounge act for 50 bucks a night and just angry all my life. Joe James guys. Brown used to do this to me. So this, this is this is incredible that you have no idea when I met James Brown. To, it was to, the first time I met him was to interview him for my radio show. And afterwards, he insisted on doing air check, you know, bumpers for me. And I'm, I'm just enthralled that I'll get one. And he does like 10. He does. Hi, everybody. This is James Brown. And the time is. <laughs> Hi everybody. This is James Brown on the Alan Lead Show. Alan, what's the weather? <laughs> he did all these bumpers, and half of them we never used. But it's it's hysterically just went on and on and on and on. I, I wish I still had my radio voice. You can tell us. It's yes, I, but it's you're it, it's iconic. You're it's like <laughs> iconic. Yeah. Right. All right. So let let me let me just say this to the audience. Um, you know, I, I told you when we started this show that I listened to uh, other interviews as well. And I want to do a couple of a couple of shout outs. If you if you love Alan's stories, he's got so many of them. So there's a couple interviews I want to give shout outs to. 
the first shout out I want to give out to is for Questlove. Questlove has a show on uh, Questlove Supreme, and he really digs deep quite a bit, quite a bit into like you would expect Questlove to do. Um, he does some amazing, uh, amazing interview with with Alan, and of course, I would love to have Questlove on the show. Alan, we're going to have to talk. Uh, Alan, I'm also going to reach out to you via email too because I've got some ideas about how to fix fix music, and so we might, I might, I might bounce some ideas off you. That's but the a second, scary thought. Hey, it is. <laughs> That's uh, it. And the second interview uh, is by my good friend that does the Prince podcast, Michael Dean. Um, his podcast, um, the Prince podcast, it was a fantastic interview, uh, about three hours long. Uh, but he talks about every single album. He goes through every single album and, and that that Alan was a part of or was present for and really kind of goes, digs deep into the detail of, you know, how Alan felt about each of you know, how did you feel about Purple Rain? How did you feel about Love Sexy? And so he really, really digs deep. So shout out to Michael Dean and the Prince Podcast Group, um, Podcast Juice. And definitely check that out. Two great interviews if you want to hear more from Alan Leeds. And by all means, please, I'm going to make myself big for this one. By all <laughs> means, please make sure that you pick up this book right here. It's out. There was a time, James Brown, The Chitlin Circuit and Me by Alan Leeds. It's got a foreword by Questlove. And it is a, it, it, it's gotten a brave reviews. I just got it a couple of days ago. I cannot wait to absorb it. And um, I can't, Jeff, you're right to say something. I'm sorry. No, I was going to mention the book. You yes, got it. Absolutely. And I, I just put up Amazon. I just put up the Amazon link to the book so you can definitely pick it up. Uh, yes, it's got our affiliate thing tied to it. So you do it right before you do your Christmas shopping. Just click on that link before you do your Christmas shopping. Alan, it, it was an honor. Yes. Thank, thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me. It's fun to do this and um, I enjoyed it. Yes, it's it's been great, and uh, you have to get some rest. You have to come back on for a part two further down the line, maybe next year at some point, because I'm sure that there there was actually a ton of questions we had, and I'm I'm glad you stopped us because we kept it till midnight. Actually, <laughs> it, 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 I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something. In in about a year, um, maybe a year and a half, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff to talk about about both Prince and James Brown based on some projects that are in the works. So, um. Yeah, real quick question though. Did you or do you know anything what's going on with the Netflix documentary? Just um, the closing. Is it is it happening? Is it still on hold? It's it, it's very much happening. Good. I don't think it's scheduled until 2023 for meaning an air date. Wow. But um nice. It's 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 happening in a big way. Well, that's yeah. fantastic news. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's going to be, I can't, I can't really talk about it, but um, yeah, from what I know about it, it'll be the gold standard for that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I know we, we had interviews with uh, Owen Husney and other people that were also been involved with that whole process. And yeah, it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of hush hush stuff going on and a lot of movement, but it's so great to know. Uh, yes, uh, Sarah couldn't have said it ba better. <clears throat> Just great. What a living archive. Thank you so, so much. 
Um, yeah. Yes, uh, we've got a bunch of thank yous. Thank you from Angela. Thank you from Joanne. All these fine people. There's well, thank thank everybody for sitting through this nonsense for all this time. What have you been talking <laughs> two and a half hours? <laughs> this is worthwhile nonsense, that's for sure. My wife is going to say you haven't talked to me that much in the last month. <laughs> My wife says that to me every show. After every show, are you done now? Alan, thank you so, so much. And uh, it's been an honor. It has. Thank you. My my pleasure to be with you guys and good holidays and everybody stay well, stay safe, wear masks when it's appropriate. Get a shot. Yes. Happy happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Merry Christmas. All of that. Peace. All of that. Peace. We'll see you later.